In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory to thee, O God, glory to thee, heavenly King, O comfort of the Spirit of truth, who art everywhere present, and fillest all things. O treasure of a good and bestower of life, come and dwell in us, and cleanse us, and save our souls, O good one. We come now to the second part of the life of Elder Porfirios. Last month, those who were present would have, I believe, benefited from listening to the life, because I did, and it is good because this particular elder died or passed away, went to God in 1991. So he lived very close to us. Sometimes when we read lives of saints, they are written many years ago, sometimes even centuries ago, which still have value, but a lot of people would like to read some things which helps them in today's life. Like, for example, if we read the life of St. Haralambus, which is today, he's a great saint, he lived in the first, I think, couple of centuries there, and his battle was with the pagans, those who worshipped uh, statues as gods and things like that. But we don't really have that problem to that extent. You people have problems with children and schools and health issues and depressions, etc., which obviously would have existed a little bit there, but today we have those problems quite a lot. And Elder Porfirios is, is um, very good for us to study because he did live in 1991, which means he was around when, with the TV, he was around with a lot of the temptations which exist today. He speaks about you know, psychiatric medication, he speaks about gambling, he speaks about a lot, a lot of um, things and helps people. So, today's life, we're gonna, we, we went up to a certain point last month, which was when the saint left Manathos because of sickness and he basically tried to go back to his um, little keli, as we say in Greek there, but he kept on getting sick and at the end he had to leave. The elders told him, you've got to leave because you're going to die here. Because obviously uh, the life there was difficult, plus he got sick, he got pleurisy. So he went back to his village and he didn't get much of a warm reception there. And uh, especially his mother was against him for leaving in the first place because he left without telling them. Just like uh, Saint Sava, for example, the Serbian he left without telling his parents that he went to Mount Athos. We have saints that did tell their parents. Some saints waited till their mother, for example, St. John Chrysostom, waited till his mother died. So some saints left without telling their parents. Some saints left waiting for their parents' blessing. Some saints did not even leave because their parents would not give them the blessing, so they wouldn't leave. And some disregarded that and still left. See, we, we, we see from that that with the lives of saints, that we have a lot of different... Uh, things that come out, and we can't just apply rules. Some people say, um, oh, you must get a blessing to become a, a monastic, for example, from your parents. But then we see another saint, as I said, which doesn't do that. So there's all these different variations. In his case, he didn't tell his parents, and he left as a young child of around... Uh, oh, I forgot now. No, Sorry. Seven was when he went to work, about 14, I think, and he became a monk at around 16 or 17, then he got sick. We actually start off now the life. He um, was living in a monastery 
named after St. Haralambos. And as the service said today, which some of you would have noted, that it's, this saint is venerated more in Greece. St. Haralambos is very famous in Greece. It's like they have that monastery there, which is close to the town that I said last time, Aliveri, which is somewhere around there, and that's in the island of Evia. I remember because I said to you last month that my mother was, is actually from another village further down from where the saint was from, and they actually had a church dedicated to Santa Halalambos. So we can see from that that Santa Halalambos is very much venerated in the Greek church. Not much in the Serbian as much, not much there. We have other saints that are venerated more in each uh, nation. For example, in the Serbian church, they venerate quite a lot Saint Sava. In the Russian church, they venerate Saint Seraphim of Sarov. Even though really Saint Seraphim of Sarov is venerated basically by all Orthodox, but in particular the Russians. So he went to Saint Haralambus so that he could eat because he had a problem. And the abbot there said to him, you come here and we'll give you meat, we'll give you cheese, we'll give you eggs, we'll give you butter, we'll give you everything, because he was very sick. I said last week that this is really important because it shows that there are times when people can't fast. But there are some fanatics who actually say, it doesn't matter if you're sick, you still fast because God will help. Well, I'm a bit confused because in this case, with, with this elder, who is a great, um, who will become recognised as a great saint in Greece, he uh, he didn't do that. He actually broke the fast because if he didn't, he would have died. There are cases like when we did the life of Elder Paisios last year, whereby he kept, if I read right, he actually kept the fast right through his life. He was a very great faster. He had a lot of health issues. But for some reason, he was able to keep the fast. Maybe his health, the health issues weren't the same. I don't know. But in this case, this elder could not keep the fasts until later on when he, got, when he started to get better. But he always remained sick, as we'll see. So he was living in this monastery of St. Haralambos. And as a monk... He never wanted to become a priest. His desire was he just wanted to remain a monk. And that's what he wanted for the rest of his life. Not everyone wants to become a priest. There are those who desire to become a priest, like St. Nicholas of Japan, if I remember right when I read his life, that he actually wanted to become a priest. He wasn't married, so he became a Russell monk. Then he became a priest and he went to Japan. And he enlightened the Japanese and made up the Japanese church, Orthodox Church. St. John of Cronstein desired the priesthood. Again, we can't make a rule. See, Elder Porfirios did not desire the priesthood, and that's the way everyone should be. Because I've actually met even some priests who actually say, if someone desires the priesthood, that means that they're proud or they're bad, etc. So that's not correct. However, when you are living in a monastery, then you do obedience to those who are there. But later on, we'll see about that too. So one day when he was walking with a visiting archbishop, see, there was the bishop of the area, but there was a visiting archbishop from Sinai, near Egypt. And as he was walking with this archbishop, this visiting archbishop, the elder, this 
elder who was only a young a young fellow at that time, around uh, 19 maybe, 20, he actually said to the Archbishop something that the Archbishop was shocked how he knew. We said last time that this elder, Elder Porfirios, acquired a great gift from God because of his humility. Gifts which out without humility are satanic. Some people can have gifts. If it's not with humility, then it becomes something which can destroy them. The same with natural gifts. Some people say to me, my child has a gift. He's very athletic or he's very intelligent or he's really gifted in music. And people say that I say, to me, as we'll see here, is that that's not enough for the person to have a gift. God gives gifts. We have got those gifts that God has given us naturally. We all have certain gifts. Some people are, have beautiful drawing. Other people can sing nice. A lot of those worldly singers, they're gifted. Even though they're not singing appropriate things, they're gifted. Those people who produce films, they're gifted. They've got a mind and they can, they can use the cameras, etc. They're gifted as well. But are they using their gifts for right? So when we have our children who are gifted in certain things and we're on them and saying you're good, you're good, you're good, you're fantastic, you're this, but you're not teaching the child humility, but you're teaching the child pride, the opposite to humility is pride, then those people at the end become proud and they lose themselves. A lot of times they go on to drugs and alcohol and become gamblers and whatever else they become, they lead sexually free lives. Why? Because their pride makes them to lose God's grace and then if God's grace is not there, then something else comes on the person and it makes the person a very depressed and unhappy person. So don't, like I once, someone told me the other day, um, my daughter has a certain gift in certain things, say something, I think it was something sporty. But, he said, every time she does it, she's got so much pride. She just really breathes the pride. She loves it. And I said to the father, in my opinion, I think you should stop it because the person's going to lose themselves. Now, some of you will say, oh, that's ridiculous, and if, if my child's got certain gifts, why can't that be done? Because it makes me look good as well. So a lot of parents like when their children have gifts because it makes them look good. Better for your children to have not much at all but to be humble because when they're humble, they'll also be good back to you. They'll be respectful to you. A proud person has respect for no one. A proud person has love for no one. A proud person is self-centred only for themselves. Me, myself and I, as they say. They don't care about no one. And that's what pride does. So I said to that person, don't let her do that, whatever she's doing, but cultivate in her, pray for her, cultivate in her so she can learn humility and to understand that if she has got this gift, others for music, others for other things, if they've got that gift, they have to understand that it comes from God and they have to use it in the right way, not to have pride. And we will be doing more of that when I do a talk, with God's help. I'm going to de dedicate a talk on bi 
the teachings of Elder Porfirios on the upbringing of children to do with that, to do with all those things. So, the Archbishop, the visiting Archbishop, seeing the gifts that Elder Porfirios had, said to the Bishop of the area, don't lose him, he's got something there. Uh, and so therefore, sometime later, they made him a deacon, they forced him, and the next day, they made him a priest, and he was 21 years old. Now, this is interesting. And I want to speak about this, even though some people might get offended. We have canons of the church has rules. And the rules are there for a reason. For example, a person can become a monk, if I remember right, 18. A person can become... Oh, as a reader. Oh, I'm a bit confused. But 25 is a deacon, and 30 years old is a priest... And 40 years old is a bishop. Why? Because the person who is going to become a priest and take care of people and listen to people's problems and pray for people's problems and help them needs to be mature. But today, sometimes they do these things where they make young people into priests at 20 or 21. And... That, causes, that can cause a lot of problems because the person, you know, sometimes is barely out of nappies and that causes uh, for that person not to be able to. Of course, there's exceptions. He's an exception. Saint Eleftherios became a bishop, if I remember right, at 20 years old. Exception. Not the rule. Or because certain saints did certain things. It doesn't mean that becomes the rule. Let's all make priests at 21 years old because Elder Porfirios became. That was an exception. There are a lot of exceptions in the church, but we go with the rule. The best is to, for a person to, uh, be, to be more mature, to be older, when they take on these big positions. Actually, even St. Paul, I think, says in his epistles not to make deacons and priests of people who can't even take care of their own family. Because if you can't take care of your own family, how are you going to take care of the church, your parish and things? And not to make people with positions who are new in the church and whose pride, they've got pride and they can become taken away and they think themselves great because they, they can lose themselves as well. However, there are exceptions, as I said, and we have no right to say, oh, that person became at that age, therefore he shouldn't have become. That's not for us to judge. For us... We know the rules are that. How God enlightened the bishop. What happened in that situation is not for us to judge. I'm only saying that because we need to know not to look at exceptions as rules. And in this case, this is a great exception. And now you're going to see even a greater exception in a minute. So he became a priest at 21 years old. But pretty quickly it was seen that this person that it was from God, because he had a gift of discernment. When people would come to him for confession, he knew what to say to them, he helped them, he guided them, you know, and he helped them to actually say their sins. A lot of times he would actually tell them what they've done. So the person would come, and then he would sit down with the person. If the person was a bit embarrassed or sometimes, he actually would tell them what they've done. He was able to uncover 
traps of the devil, that what the devil was trying to do to the people to make them fall away from the church, etc. And so therefore, he had a very great gift. So he stayed in that monastery there, San Haralambos, confessing people for many, many years. Now, I have an, uh, a note of the elder's own words. And now let's read what he says about him becoming a priest. He goes, or after, after he became a priest, after two years they made me a confessor. I want to clear this up as well. In the Greek church, not every single priest is able to do confession. In the Greek church, only those priests who are spiritually mature are given a special blessing to do confession. In the Slavic churches, in the Russian and Serbian churches, every priest is able to do confession, even if the priest is 21 or 22 years old or whatever. Why did this happen? This happened, this started, I think, in Russia, because Russia is such a great, big, big country. And if they did what the Greeks did, then they would, a lot of people would never confess. Because in Greece, what they do is, there might be a village priest, but he might not be a confessor, but every, every so often, every few times a year during fast periods, priests would come who are confessors and confess the people in the village and they'd go around. But Greece is small. The rush is not like that. So I think that's what happened there where they actually changed a lot of the rules and said we've got to have people because some people were in such remote areas in Russia, cut off. It would take some you know, like in Siberia and other places over there, near Japan on the other side there, some people would, it would take for someone to come, there might even take weeks and weeks for someone to get there. Perhaps they should go back to that rule, I think, of the following the, the Greek example, because um, now, especially in the cities, there are more people that are available. But, you know, I'm not here to judge certain practices, but I'm just saying that's how it is in the uh, Greek church. Now... After two years, oh, sorry, yeah, they said they made him a confessor. On, one, on a great feast day, there were lots of people present. They took me to the archbishop's residence and they officially read the prayer for becoming a spiritual father. This is a practice in the Greek church. When someone's going to become a spiritual father, they read a special prayer that gives him the authority to confess people and to forgive sins. And it's given by the bishop. In the Slavic churches, as soon as one becomes a priest, whether he's Serbian or Russian, etc., they become spiritual fathers immediately with no prayer. And that's how it is. I was very young. What did I know about it? He's saying to himself, and foolish wretch, I was thick-headed in the bargain. He was trying to say, I shouldn't have become because I was young. He's actually admitting that. I shouldn't have become, he feels, because he was young and he didn't know many things, which we'll see in a minute. I was uneducated, I didn't know about the canons of the church, and with incredible stupidity, what did I do? I bowed my head in obedience, now I realise my folly, now I realise my silliness, he's saying, at that time I, I, I wasn't so aware of it. What he's trying to say is that he should have refused the bishop to become a spiritual father. And... Elder Paisios, if you read his writings, it's actually interesting because he actually says that um, bishops would come to his hermitage at Mount Athos and say to him, I command you as a bishop that I am, 
that you will come out and come to my diocese and help the people. And Elder Paisio said, I can't do that. He goes, no, you must be obedient because I'm a bishop and etc. Et and Elder Paisio said, if I do that, I'll, I won't be a monk anymore. I'll just be lo I'll lose myself because they'll make me go out whenever they want. And Elder Paisio, they wanted him for him to become a priest, but he didn't listen. Many bishops told him to become. Elder Porfirios, on the other hand, he did obedience and he, and, he, and he did it. Now, does that make him better than Elder Paisios or other saints who actually cut their fingers off? Because when you have missing fingers, you can't become a priest. And some people were, some of the saints were pressured and were, and were told, you know, become a priest, you, are, you will be a good priest. And they said, I don't want to become. And that they were scared that they were going to be forced to become. So some of them actually cut their finger off or whatever so that they, that they can't become. Some would even run away, completely disappear from the monastery. See how there's exceptions? Elder Porfirios said, I did it out of obedience. But the other ones say, I'm not going to do it. So who's right? Should he have been obedient? Should he not have been obedient? Everyone's different according to the person's spiritual temperament, the person's uh, character. As we'll see later on, Elder Porfirios was just obedient to everything, which he later on says was a weakness and not very good, and it got him into trouble at times. He would actually, whatever someone says, someone says to him, come over here, he would go. Because that's the, his character. Once they found out, some criminals found out that he was able to find things. He knew from God's enlightenment where there was water under the ground, where there was gold, for example, and things like that. He knew. So these criminals came up to him and tricked him and said, you come with us, etc. And they took him to the place where they thought that this gold was buried so that he could find, the, tell them where the gold was. And he did it. He didn't even think to himself that, you know, something could happen to him. And later on, if I remember correctly, he, um, he was enlightened by God. See, we can be enlightened or we can just be in our human way. A saint is not always enlightened, just like you as parents. You always ask God for enlightenment to help you with your children. And sometimes you feel, oh, that was from God. I actually feel that, that that what I thought of what to do with my child in that particular situation was from God. But not always. And if that's the case, and that's also the case for saints, they don't, they're not enlightened every second of the day. He went. Then he was enlightened that one of them wanted to kill him. At the end, once he found the gold coins at that, because during the war, people were burying their gold because there was a lot of robbing going on. So uh, there's a lot of places probably haven't, still haven't found that people actually buried their gold coins, their sovereigns, and later on they could have been killed, and that's why I think now and then they do come across buried gold. And he left. He left. He secretly left the hotel and he left them. The one that wanted to kill him, I think, if I remember right, died. Harsh, not a very nice death. So, no, we don't always have to be obedient for certain things. If someone says, you have to be obedient and become a monk, or you have to be obedient and become a nun, you don't have to. You've got to want to. No one can force you to become. No one can force you to become a priest. 
no one can force you to become a deacon, etc. And in this case, yes, he became, but he himself said, I regret it, because he didn't know. How the monks and lay people that came for confession loved me, he would say. I heard confession there day and night. I started early in the morning and continued through all the day and throughout the night and the next day and the next night without interruption. I've heard that there are certain spiritual fathers in Greece that you, I know it's going to sound really, really bizarre, but you have to actually get a ticket because there are so many people that want to go to them that you might have to get a ticket and your number might come up in days to come, maybe even a week. Good spiritual fathers are sought. I went 48 hours without eating. Fortunately, God took care and gave my sister the enlightenment to bring me some milk to drink. People waited all night long for their turn. When they left, they would say to each other, now there's a priest who knows, who's a knower of hearts. In other words, the people would say, he's a really good spiritual father. He knows what's in my heart. He can help me. Now, uh, I remember they used the Albanian word for priest, which is priftis. Now, some of you are going to say, um, but he wasn't, uh, Evi is not Albanian. Evi is on this side of Greece. Albania is up there, side of Serbia, if I remember right. To your shock, uh, a lot of Albanians left Albania, back in maybe 600 years ago, 500 years ago, they left and went to certain parts. Some of them went to Greece. And in certain parts of Greece, there are whole areas of villages that speak that language. They speak Albanian, but, and they converted to orthodoxy. The ones who went to Serbia, the ones that went to Kosovo, etc., they never converted, if I, if, if I know right, because their country was very close and somehow they still kept in contact whatever they did there and they stayed Muslim because they were Muslim. But these ones went into Greece and then they mixed with the, with the others, the Greeks there. And to your surprise, my mother actually spoke Albanian, which I didn't, have under, I didn't understand when I was young. When I went to her village when I was 16, they all spoke that language. My grandmother, for example, her, the language that she knew the best was Albanian, second was Greek. As I said, we have the town Aliveri, which is there. After that town, they all speak that language. From this side, where Elder Porfirio was, was from, they didn't speak it. But there's other pockets in Greece, in Peloponnesus and other parts of Macedonia, I think around there, where there are pockets of areas where they speak this language. So I rang up my auntie because my mum passed away and I asked her, how do you say priest? She says, priftis, which is exactly correct because um, that's their, that was their language. But of course, as I said, they mixed and um, uh, the older people there in the, in the villages still speak it as number one language. Just like in certain areas in Greece, they speak Slavic language. In northern parts of Greece, there are... Greeks, they're in Greece, but they speak uh, Slavic language, Serbian, whatever. That's, they actually still speak it. So this is, this is just what happened in that time. So 
a lot of the people would go to him for confession. When they would come, I would ask them questions. I would ask, how old are you? This is important, which I really like when I read it. How old are you? Whom do you live with? One would say with my wife, another would say with my parents, another would say I live on my own. Then I would continue, what have you studied? What's your job? How long is it since you last had confession? How long is it since you received Holy Communion and so on? Why do you think he asked those questions? Anyone know? And a lot of times the priests don't ask those questions. One, because there could be a big line for confession. But why did he do it? That's correct, both of you. That um, for, for the confessor to really be able to help someone, they have to know something of their life, to know what's going on. If the person's single and he accidentally falls into something, it's more understandable that if a person's married. If a person's married and they go and commit adultery, then that would be more serious. If the person's single, then that's still serious, but not as serious because they're not, they're not married. What job? How much? How educated are they? If they're educated, that means they can read the holy books, they can read Lives of Saints, they can read um, the Gospels, the Bible. My grandmother, for example, was completely illiterate. And a lot of those people in those villages, most of them have died now, but uh, there are still people who did not have any education. And that's why the priest asks those questions. When someone asks me for advice, for example, before I even get to their problem, I ask them maybe 50 questions. So I know, who, who am I speaking to? What's going on? Who are they? Is the person a church-going person? Does the person, is he mixed, are they mixed up with other religions? What, what's going on? You, know, you have to get an idea of who the person is. And that's what Elder Porfirios did. And, uh, you know, and I, I really like that myself. I think, I think that's, that's the way it should be. And depending on what he said... To me, I would speak to him a little, and because there was a queue waiting outside, I would say, what do you remember now, my child? What do you feel is weighing on your soul, on your conscience? So he would say to him, what do you feel is burdening you? Because when we sin, as I said last month, we are burdened. It makes us heavy. It makes us unhappy. When we confess then we feel that we are, if we repent and we confess, we feel that we are free from that burden. Those who have experienced it will know. Those who haven't experienced it will, will only know if they experience it. Am I telling you to go and confess? No, because I don't believe in telling people, you must go and confess, you must do this, you must do that. That's up to the people themselves, which the elder did as well. You never forced anyone. You don't force people to repent. You don't force people to follow Christ. You don't force people to fast. You don't force people to do anything. The elder said they have to do it because they want to do it. And he would begin to confess his errors and I would help him along a little, having told him first that truly he must say everything, what he feels. To begin with, when I first started to hear confessions, this is interesting, I used to tell the people off because the, the older would hear sins and would say, why did you do that? That's not good and that's bad, etc. Some priests do that. I used to have at my side a book by St. Nicodemus, which is a confessor's guide. 
And in this book, it tells you if someone does that sin, what should you do with them? If someone does that sin, how many years they shouldn't commune, each sin and things like that. Because he never, he never had the experience. Even though he wasn't enlightened by God, a lot of times he did help people. If he confessed a serious sin, then I would look up the book and would see that it wrote not to receive Holy Communion for 18 years. I didn't know, he says about himself, I was inexperienced. And so I imposed that. I said to the person, because you've done that sin, you are not allowed to commune for 18 years, according to the canon. Whatever the book said was law. But then people would come back the following year. They would come from various places, from various villages, from far and near. And I would ask them, how long is it since your last confession? Because he didn't, he didn't recognise the people, so many people. And they would answer, I confessed you to you last year. Then I would ask him, and what did I tell you? They would reply, you told me to do 100 prostrations every night. And did you do them? He says, no. Why not? Well, you told me that I can't receive communion for 18 years, so I thought to myself, what's the point? Since I'm damned, since I'm going to go to hell, I might as well forget about the whole thing. See, too harsh can be very, very uh, dangerous. Confession is one of the biggest things on earth. That's why I said those things at the beginning of the, of the talk, not to put people down and to show that I really do believe that, I actually have chosen not to do confession because to me it was just overwhelming. I, I could not. I thought it was just you've got someone in front of you and if you say the wrong words, you can lose that person and that's how, that's how I feel. That's personally how I feel. It is the most difficult thing of them all as a priest is to confess people and to guide them and anyway um, you understand then another person would come and say the same thing so I thought what do I do now it was then I began to become a little wiser the confessor has the power to bind and loose Christ gave the confessor the power to forgive sins and he gave the power not to forgive sins. Some priests forget that. Some people forget that too. God gave that power to the priests, not to the icons, not to some lady that reads coffee cups. He didn't give that power to even saints who weren't priests. He gave that power to the bishops and the bishops gave it to the priests. That's how great it is. And the, the confessor has the power to bind and loose. I remembered one of St. Basil's rules, St. Basil the Great, and took this as my basis, and I changed my tactics. The rule says, he who receives the power to bind and loose, in other words, the priest who has this power, can, according to the repentance of the person, according to the person's soul, give less time of what the punishment, or well, the penance is, we shouldn't call them punishments, the penance. If the canon says you, a person must not commune for five years, he has that power to do that. But he also has power to do it for four years, or three years, or two years, or one year, or straight away. That's the power that the, it's up to the discretion of the priest. 
Don't let him judge the penances in terms of time, but in terms of disposition. That's what St. Basil says. And so I started to encourage the people to read the canons of the church, like poetry, the, the, all the beautiful traparia that we've got of the church, to read short prayers, to make prostrations, and to read Holy Scripture. Now, this is really excellent. And in that way, they began to pay attention to the things of our religion. Their hearts were softened, and without any external prompting, in other words, without forcing, they started to do the fasts, they started to enter the spiritual arena, and they came to know about Christ. And this is correct. When a person comes to you, you've got to treat the person according to where they are. It's like, as I said, I'm a teacher before. So how can a person who comes to me who's in year seven, how can I teach them the things that you do in year 11 or 12? How can I teach them calculus or integration or whatever else they do up there? It doesn't, it's, unless the person's exceptionally a brain, but uh, you can't do that. It's just, it's ridiculous. The person cannot do it. The same as in the spiritual life. You've got to look at where the person's at. Does this person often go to church? Does this person lead a spiritual life? Does this person, has a person confessed before? Is the person under guidance? Does the person read books? Does the person know anything? And you've got to go according to the person's state, to, the, to their level. If they're beginners, you treat them as beginners. If they're more progressed, you treat them as progressed. For example, if someone comes to me, and, um, or before when I used to do confessions, or even now if they come for advice, and someone says to me um, a certain thing that they've done. If the person's been in the church for a long period of time, then I will be more strict on that person. But the other person who hasn't come to church, doesn't know much, I wouldn't be as strict. And that's what we've got to understand. And just tell, and what Elder Porfirios did is he just tells the person to do something small. I do a little bit of gospel, which is what I told you last year. If you people who might not have much church, may not go much to church, if you just read a little bit every day of the gospel, even a few lines, read a couple of prayers, even just a couple of little prayers, read a little bit of spiritual books, listen to a talk like you're doing now or other talks, Slowly, slowly, you begin to change. It happens without you even sometimes realising it. You don't tell someone in the beginning, okay, um, that person comes up to you and says, I want to I lead more of a church life now. Okay, next Sunday is the last day to eat. For 40 days, you won't eat meat, you won't eat this, you won't eat that, you won't do this. And some people do that. Some people actually give that advice. I would never say that. Personally, for me, I wouldn't say it. I would say to them, okay, have you ever fasted before? No. So how do I know their, their level of um, health? How do I know that if they start doing the fast that they might not get sick? And mentally, because sometimes excessive fasting can affect the mind. Low sugar levels. Low iron. I remember once someone went to a priest and they said, I feel very, very, very weak because they were doing the fast. And he goes, eat almonds. And that was his answer, eat almonds. And almonds, yes, they're good and they've got some protein there, 
But not for everyone. Some people can't do that. Personally, what I would say to the person is, why don't you just give up one thing? Give up one, one thing. Maybe give up uh, milk or something. Give up milk, and maybe you can do a little fast on some of the days during the Lent. And then the next Lent, you do a bit more. And the next Lent, you do a bit more and a bit more. We don't have to become super orthodox from day one as soon as we come into the church. We don't have to become and start reading prayers. Some people come to the church, they come and they become excited, and they start reading prayers all night or doing hundreds of prostrations as if they're Saint Seraphim of Sarov. But they're not. There might be some exceptions. There are some lives of saints, as soon as they repented, like Saint Mary of Egypt, who we, whose, whose memory we celebrate on the fifth week of Lent, coming up, actually with the talks on that day, the 20-something of April. Um, as soon as she repented, she went into the desert and started leading a very strict life. That's an exception. In most cases, we do things slowly. As soon as someone comes into the church and starts telling me, I'm doing this fast and I'm doing this prayers and I'm doing this and I'm doing that, for me, I get worried about that person that they actually could lose themselves. Because zeal is good, but if it's not done with humility, then it can become dangerous, demonic, and you can lose your soul. All of us. So their hearts will become softened, and one thing I have understood is that when someone, this part I love too, one, this is what the elder says, and one thing I understood is that when someone comes to know Christ and love him and is loved by Christ, everyone, everything thereafter proceeds well in holiness and joy and everything is easy. So sometimes we force our children to do things that I want to do it. Uh, elder Paisios and Elder Porfirios actually says when you do that, when you force your children to follow certain things of religion, you make them... Uh, you make them to hate religion. You make them to hate the church. You, and you can even make them fanatical. He realised, this is my conclusion, he realised that he had to handle each of the persons that came to him individually. Everyone's different. You can't have a formula. Like in maths, there's formulas. The formula is set. Not in spiritual life. Every single person is different. Every person's different, and everyone has a special remedy that the spiritual father gives for that person. The more the spiritual father is enlightened, the more he will understand the remedy for each person. So, around 1938, he had to leave the holy monastery of San Halalambos because it became into a woman's monastery. It was converted, it was no longer a men's monastery, so he had to leave. And he went to a place near the capital of Evia, which is Alkida, and he went to a little ruined monastery there of St. Nicholas, and he lived there for three years by himself in this ruined place. He fixed it up a bit, obviously, and he lived there. But he, during that time, he also was made priest of the village, which is called Sakei. And that village, as I said, my mother's village is there, and that village is around two to three villages down from her. So he actually was a priest in that village. And in that village, they, they spoke a full Albanian, so he wouldn't have known what they're talking about unless obviously God enlightened him. Um, some of the older village, village people there, the, the, the older people, cherish fond memories of his presence to this day. Now, this was written 
18 years ago, I don't know how many would be left, but perhaps some would be still left, because he left Evio, as we'll see, in 1940, which is 69 years ago. Now, if someone's 80 or 90, yes, they might still remember him when he was in Evia. Evia is a very big island. It's the second biggest in Greece, and it's got interesting. It's got St. John the Russian in northern. It's got Elder Porphyrius from there. St. Nectarius preached there when he was being persecuted, when he had nowhere to go, and he was preaching there, and a lot of the people would um, call out while he was doing his sermons and make fun of him because they had heard slanders about him, that he was immoral. And after a while, they began to understand that it was a lie, and they began to um, love him. And we've also got St. David, where Father Yakovos was from. So we have quite a few saints that are there, and their relics are there too. St. John the Russian's body is there, just like we have in Russia, in Serbia, and in Greece. There are certain bodies that are incorrupt. They haven't decomposed. St. John the Russian is one of them. St. Sava's one, the Serbian, was, but then the Turks burnt it. St. Gerasimus, St. Vinicius and St. Spiridon are all on the west coast of Greece, on three islands, and they are incorrupt. Do you know why they're there? This is what the, this is what the Holy Fathers say. The reason why God put on those three islands those three saints and made their bodies to be incorrupt such that it's a big miracle and when someone sees that, why would they change religions for? And they, and they do a lot of miracles. There's the side of Greece there. St. Spiridus in Corfu. St. Dionysius is in Zakynthos. I forget the order there. And St. Gerasimus is in Kefalonia. And their bodies are incorrupt. They did not decompose. It doesn't mean that because they didn't decompose, another saint did, that they're, that, that they're better. God allows St. Nectarius, for example, was incorrupt, but around, I forgot now, a few, uh, some decades after, I'm not sure, his body decomposed. Some say that happened so that he can, um, his body can be cut up and taken to all parts of the world. There's a piece of St. Nectarius in the Burwood Greek Church. The reason why God allowed for those three saints to be there is because on that coast, what's the country to the left of that coast? Who knows what's on the left of Greece? Italy. The Italians are Catholics. The Catholics many times took over those islands and their Greeks were in danger of losing their orthodoxy, of being converted because Catholics are different to Muslims. Muslims, they can either kill you or they try, maybe try and convert you sometimes, but most of the time they leave you alone. Catholics don't leave you alone in those days. But in those days... They were, uh, they used to take over, they took over a lot of those islands and they would try to convert the Greeks to Catholicism. But the Greeks wouldn't convert a lot of them because they said, why should we convert when we have great saints as St. Spiridon, St. Erasmus and St. Dionysius, which made a wall to protect Greece from Catholicism. When Constantinople was going to fall in 1453, it was a choice of the, of the Greeks falling to the Catholics, to the Latins, or falling to the Muslims. God allowed for the, and Serbia, and Greece, and Constantinople to fall to the Muslims, because the Muslims are more tolerant of orthodoxy 
they actually uh, were more free, and that's why orthodoxy made it. Serbia was under influence of the Muslims for 500 years, certain parts of Greece, northern Greece for 500, southern Greece 400 years. It was only about 100 years ago when, they, when the Muslims, um, when Serbia and northern Greece got, got the power back again. So what does that show? It shows that, yes, it was bad that Greece and other countries were under Tur Turkish occupation for 400 to 500 years. But at the end of that 400 to 500 years, orthodoxy still existed. If it fell to the Roman Catholics of that time, then all of Greece and all of Serbia would have become Catholic. So God knows what's better for us than what we think we know. He left Evia just before the Italians invaded Greece in 1940. So he went to Athens. At the beginning of the Second World War, Elder Porfirios was found in Athens. And he had this desire, which he had also when he was on, on Manathos. He wanted to help the sick. He wanted to be working in the hospitals to help people that were dying, people that were sick, people that were hopeless. He wanted to be there. He wanted to become a priest in a hospital because in Greece... That's how it is. I mean, not, not here as much, but uh, in Greece, there's the, even the, the government-owned hospitals have priests that are appointed to the hospital to take care of the needs of the people because in Greece, the majority are orthodox. Yes, they have the chapels in there and there's a priest appointed to be able to take care of the needs of the sick people. Out of his compassionate love, he wanted to work in a hospital so to be closer to his fellow Christians who were suffering from cancer, leprosy or tuberculosis. He thought that he could help them during their most difficult times, their illnesses, their pain, their hopelessness and the approaching of death for some of them that were going to die. He wanted to give them hope in Christ. Now that is a very, very great thing. Now, there are some superstitious people, silly, who actually think that when a priest comes to you at, in your hospital, that means you're going to die, and they don't want the priest to come. So even when their relatives say, why doesn't the priest come to read you a prayer? They go, no, I don't want the priest, because they think that that means they're going to die, you know, because they're silly. That's not correct. The prayers of the priest can actually make a person better. And if the person doesn't get better, their death will be easier and depart to the next life. He applied for the position of priest at the Polyclinic of Athens. Polyclinic, which is in, somewhere down there um, in the heart of Athens. There were other applicants with excellent credentials, better than him in the sense of uh, education, etc., who were also interested in the position. But God enlightened the professor who was the director. He, was, he, he, was, he directed the hospital. He was a professor. He taught at university. He enlightened him in the following way. So the director, he actually noticed that Elder Porfirios was no ordinary priest. So he took him to the Archbishop of Athens. The Archbishop was the one who appoints priests, so he had to get the permission of the Archbishop. So here's the story from Elder Porfirios. He says, the Archbishop, ask me, what education do you have? I answered, I'm not educated. I learned to read in the desert when I was a Manathos, in other words. How long did you attend school? 
only one year of primary school. Then the Archbishop looked in a strange way and says, well, what are you doing? Why are you bringing this person here? Like, are you joking? He looked at the professor in a certain way. What can we do, professor, he said. It's the centre of Athens, there, there in Ammonia Square, which is the centre of Athens, Ammonia. People will think we're mad. In other words, the archbishop said, people will think we're mad to have such a priest in the position there in the heart of Athens in the hospital because people also come off the street and would go and visit there. People would go and confess there, as we'll see later on. It wasn't just the sick people that used to go there. People used to come off the street and things like that. And the archbishop said, this is embarrassing. So people will think we're mad, said the archbishop. Not at all, said the professor. He's the priest I want for the job. He's the one. How is it to be done, queried the archbishop. Then turned to me, meaning to the old, and asked, do you know how to sing? I've learned in a practical sort of way, because, you know, church singers in the Greek church, they learn using special symbols. In the other churches, they use Western notes, you know, the Doremi stuff. But in the Greek church, they actually use and the Arabic church, actually, they use special symbols. And most chanters know to do that. And he said, I don't know how to do that. All I know is just practical, which is how we sing there, because the people that sing here, they just do practical. They don't really know how to read even music. So they did not bad, actually, considering that they can't read music. So I've uh, learned in a practical way. Listen to me, my child, the bishop said, the archbishop. This is a position that needs an educated person a priest who's able to preach because that area is the centre of vice, is the centre of sin. A lot of sin goes, there's a lot of brothels, there's a lot of drugs, you know, and corruption. And there must be someone who can speak and teach the people. Nevertheless, the professor wants you. So what, what I say is this. You're not educated, but at least you try to maintain a dignified bearing. What does that mean? In other words, that he had a good look about him. He actually looked like a priest. He looked traditional. And, you know, we have some educated priests that can look like, uh, don't even look like priests. We have some educated priests that do look like priests. But in this case, the Archbishop said, well, you're simple, you're not educated, but you look good as a priest and you've got simplicity and humility, etc. Um... So I would even go as far as to say that perhaps your manner is better than someone of a th of, with a theological education who would preach to the people with fine words. In other words, what the Archbishop was saying is there are people who are educated that have gone to university and studied theology, but their words sound beautiful, they sound perfect, but they're dead. There are theologically educated people who actually can preach, just that there are a few. Most of them, when they start to study, they fall into pride. And that's why we have a lot of our elders who actually discouraged their spiritual children going to the universities to learn theology. I remember reading Elder Philotho Zervakos. He wasn't educated. He will become a saint as well, a Greek elder. Very great man. And I remember reading that he would say to someone, no, don't, don't go and study. Because of the danger. Because a lot of times some of the professors in the universities are teaching theology, but they're either heretical 
atheists, etc. So, you know, it's all mixed up. So therefore, humble and charming Porfirios, who was indeed uneducated according to the standards of the world, but wise according to God, was chosen to become the priest of that hospital. The person who made this choice, the professor in other words, later expressed his amazement and joy in finding a true priest by saying, I found a perfect father just like Christ wants. So that's how he became the priest in 1940 of the polyclinic in Athens, and he would remain there for quite a few years. He carried out with complete love and devotion his work as a priest. He loved his priesthood. He understood the power of the priesthood. He celebrated the services, the, the, um, the liturgies and all that, visited the wards, the sick people, confessing, reprimanding when needed, like nicely, healing souls, and many times he even healed people that were sick. Apart from his duties as a chaplain for the hospital, he also served as confessor and guide to the thousands of faithful who came to him that weren't in the hospital. They came from Athens. They heard about that he was you know, a good confessor, and they went to him. So he had the job of taking care of all the sick, the needs, the spiritual needs of all the sick, but he also had the job of taking care of all the people who had come off the street to do confession and, and seek his advice. And he would say, uh, he would say of himself, this is humility, he would say, I was uneducated, insignificant and poor. And he also said about himself that he didn't socialise. He wasn't a very social person. So what happens to the social anxiety that the doctors try to tell us today and we have to go on pills because we have social anxiety or we can't, really, we can't talk in crowds? I mean, how many people can talk in crowds? And how many people uh, can go up to a group of people and say, how are you going, how's things, and be social? Or because we see it on TV and we think, oh, that's the norm. When a lot of the TV, these movies and shows, it's made up. But because young people see it, and these young people grow up and become older, they believe that that's the way you have to be. You have to be cool. You have to be, you know, um, social and be able to speak. And then you wonder why they take drugs and they go to drink before they go to a party because it's the only way they can loosen up because they're, they're, they're trying to be something that they're not. So they don't like to walk into a party looking like a, a plank because they're so stiff so they drink and take drugs so they can loosen up. But that's not the point. You don't, this social anxiety that a lot of the um, uh, drug companies say, they actually made up a lot of the disease just to sell medication. A lot of modern psychiatric medicine is made up. Not all of it, some of it's useful. A lot of it is made up, just make things up. Some women have a baby, yes, they can get a bit depressed. Why? Well, obviously, they just gave birth to a baby. There's loss of blood. There's a hormonal change. It's tiring. The child cries. Now you've got postnatal depression. You take some pills. Make yourself high and make the baby high through your breast milk. And, and, and just makes a whole mess. But there are some women who do get truly sick. This saint admits that he didn't, he didn't have that gift of socialising. So we should look at that and say, and not to put ourselves down and say, I'm not social, I'm not social, I'm not social all the time and become mentally ill in reality 
when really it's, I mean, how many people, we have a lot of saints who were shy. We have a lot of saints that were social. But it's, you don't, why is it important that you have to be social to that extent? When I was at school, I didn't like groups. I had one or two friends. You might say, well, how are you doing this now? Well, this is different. This is, this is the priesthood. This is different. But in general, that's how I am. If I'm sitting there where you're sitting now and I'm listening to a talk, for example, I wouldn't even put up my hand to ask a question because I can't do it. When I was at school, I never put up my hand. What does that make me? A socially deformed person. Just, just silly, silly things that people have. So this saint said he was uneducated, that he was an insignificant and poor person, and he didn't socialise. How he looked at others. This is what he said. This is how he, how he looked at others, and it's good for us to learn how he looked at others because when we look at people, we look at people judgmentally. We have jealousy. We are intimidated. We have a lot of hate. All these things... And that's not good. It's a sin. It makes us sick, actually, when you actually look at people and put them down, whether to someone else, whether you put them down in your mind, it's no good. This is what he said. I loved everyone. I felt pained from, for everyone and everything moved me. This is something that divine grace had given me. Important. Important. Why don't we have love for people? Because we, all of us, I put myself in it, because we lack grace from God. And why do we lack grace from God? Because we do sins which shoo away the grace from God. The more we struggle, the more we repent, the more we pray and commune and become sanctified, the more we begin to love others around us. And that's why St. Paul gave that beautiful epistle where he says, if you give your body to be burnt, if you give all your money to the poor, if you suffer and do everything supposedly for Christ, you've done nothing if you haven't got love. So this is something that divine grace had given me. When I would look at the nurses in their white uniforms, I would say, here come the angels, because they would wear white, and he would call them angels coming down to church, and tears came to my eyes when I saw them. I love the nurses very much, and when I saw a nurse in uniform, I thought of her as a sister of mercy, a sister of love on her way to celebrate a liturgy in the temple of the, of the love of God in the hospital. In other words, like a priest serves a liturgy, when you take care of a sick person, it's like you're serving a form of a liturgy, because the liturgy is called the liturgy of love. When we commune, we partake of the cup of love. When we take care of someone who's sick, we also partake in love. We are actually doing a, a beautiful spiritual work which is based on love. That's how great it is to take care of a sick person. I always advise people, don't put your parents and people like that in nursing homes. In the old days, I used to say, you shouldn't, you shouldn't do it. I don't say that now because some people get offended. So I got another way of saying it so as not to offend people. Each person will go according to their conscience. If it is true that they can't take care of the person for whatever reason, that's between them and God. It's not for me to say you should have or you shouldn't have taken care of and take care of that person. If you can take care of the person and you don't because you're selfish, 
then yes, that's a sin. Again, that's between you and God. But it is, the, it is a great thing to take care of someone who's sick. I said in a talk about five, six months ago that one of the reasons why our youth are inflamed with sexual passion, which is like really strong in these days, apart from the pornography and all those things that exist, one of them is that we don't take care of sick people, which if we remember right, we read in the holy books of the ascetics that there was a monk, for example, who was being tempted by the devil in, to fornicate, to fall with a woman. And he prayed and prayed and prayed and it wouldn't go away, the, the feeling. So then he, he did prostrations and it still didn't go away. Then he started to belt himself and it still didn't go away. Then he started to fast and it still didn't go away. Then he basically ate nothing and it still didn't go away. Even though obviously those things do help. But in this case, it was a special thing that God wanted to show us. And he did, and it wouldn't go away and he was fearing that he could fall and lose his soul, lose his monastic life. He was tempted to go into the city because those desert fathers used to live in the, in the desert. There was no women around. But he was tempted to go to the, to back to the city to, to fall. And what happened was that... Um, I can't remember the exact, so I think God enlightened him or an angel enlightened him or his spiritual father. Take care of someone who's sick. So he found an, an old monk that was living there that, that was very sick and no one had no one to take care of that person. And he started to take care of that person. And after some time, then the lust, this passion that was in him, began to go down and went away. And that's a very good thing. And I thought to myself, well, how many people really take care of sick people? Even sometimes people in your own house could be sick and people are unmoved because they say, well, I've got studies to do and I've got money to make and I've got high positions to make and, you know, I can't be bothered to take care of someone that's sick. Do we have to make the money now? I mean, can't we wait a year? Can't we wait two years maybe? You know, why is it important? Do we have to go up high in the career immediately? And what happens when you get your high position? And what happens when you get all the money? Why do we hear about people jumping off um, the gap, the cliffs, committing suicide, being, being gamblers, alcoholics, etc., etc.? Because they are depressed. And they're depressed because they do not have God to help them. Now, there are some who are biologically sick, there's certain diseases which come from physical, it's beyond them. And I'm not putting those people down. And that's why some of them that commit suicide that are mentally ill, truly, the church will bury. But it won't bury those who are not mentally ill, but it's because of their sins. So what's more important? To make money when you've got someone there How will we give word if we have someone next to us who's sick, who we can take care of, but we are too busy trying to go out and make money or do whatever else we're doing? So that's why Elder Porfirio spoke very highly about taking care of the sick. Don't lose the opportunity. Don't come later on or run out in the street and start saying, oh, he said that I put my my mother in the nursing home and he said that I've got no God. 
Whether you've got God or not is up to you to discern, not for me to discern. I'm telling you that there are those who have done it in a selfish way, and I would say, yes, they've got no God. If you didn't do it in a selfish way, well, that's different. There's sometimes there's certain medical conditions where you can't do anything about it. It's, it's just too, too hard, etc. Well, you know, each, each person would judge themselves. And they yapping away and start um, crying. How many things we pass over unnoticed? He's trying to say that there are things that we can observe and admire. When I saw a mother breastfeeding her baby, I was moved. When I saw a pregnant woman, I wept. When I saw a primary school teacher taking the pupils to church, because in Greece they used to, I don't know if they still do, they, the, part of the school curriculum was to take children to church. And I shed tears at their work of love. The greatest delight for me, of course, was the time of the divine liturgy, when he would serve liturgy. When I was reading, the congregation held its breath. I was carried away. In other words, it became absorbed in the service. I celebrated in a very devoted, dev devoted manner because I loved to celebrate the liturgy, but the people were also inspired by the simple way I celebrated. I'll give you an example, a story that I heard. A person rang up a monastery. This happened in Greece and said, my niece was in a very bad accident, brain damage. Um, the doctors think that she will not, not necessarily she's going to die, but there's no way she will become normal. So he rang up the monastery, and the monastery started to do prayers for that person, read prayer, uh, served liturgy, because a lot of monasteries in Greece serve liturgy every day, and they would read that person's name and read prayers in the liturgy, most powerful. And the person recovered to the surprise of the doctors. And this person said, I, I know it must have been the prayers of the monastery because there was no hope for that person. And there are so many miracles which occur. The elder here, he was, sorry, how, as I'm trying to say, how great it is that he was present in a, in a hospital and would know who was sick. And therefore, when he would serve liturgy, he would take out a piece of the prosphoro and put it onto the, onto the discourse and then later on put it into the blood of Christ, and that would help that person. How many people were healed? How many people got strength? How many people were prepared for death through the liturgy? We said, where there's liturgies served, crime rate is down, sin is at its lowest, where there's not liturgy served, then there's, there's, it's a catastrophe. In Manathos, for example, the whole of Manathos, I've said this before and I won't stop saying it, Manathos at around one o'clock in the morning to around six or seven o'clock in the morning, because they wake up midnight, a lot of them, and they do prayers and they do the whole cycle of services, they prayers, this morning service might take five hours or six hours, all night, and if they've got vigils, like special days, the service can go for 14 hours. So every day, all the monasteries serve liturgy. And all the little houses that are around, the Neskites, they all serve liturgy too. So at the time, at that time in Mount Athos, it is said that it is inflamed, like it's engulfed in what we call divine fire. That's how 
powerful and how big those prayers are. And it's through the prayers that are done during the liturgy that the world is even standing. And remember that. I'm not saying that because you can say, oh, he's only saying that because he's a priest. It doesn't bother me what anyone says. I'm telling you from experience that the liturgy is the basis of everything. During the liturgy, the prayers are made for all Orthodox Christians, but at the same time, the whole world becomes sanctified. Elder Porfirios lived in the hills in Athens, in a, in a house, but it was a bit of a distance. He had to go up around, you know, like in those days, it wasn't as populated Greece, like later on it became more Athens. So he lived with his parents, his sister and niece in an old shack in the hills. Because, and, and he was given a tiny salary from the hospital, very, very small. wasn't enough even to live off. But in order to survive, he was forced to create various other sources of income. So he would say himself, he would say, at night we worked in silence and in prayer. We had knitting machines. This is really amazing. They had knitting machines and knitted vests and pullovers and sold them for he can live. Later on in Greece, they changed it and all priests get paid by the government. And some people say that wasn't good because they become like public servants and slaves of the government and they get pensions, etc. In the old days, priests were paid by whatever people gave them. So then there's a, there's a safety net there. If someone wants to become a priest in Greece, and this, this has happened, a lot of people became because they get a good salary government salary and a pension at the end. Not because they really want to be priests, but in other countries where there's no wages, especially in areas where they're poor, the priests don't get wages and have to depend on what God sends them through the, through the people. And you can't help praising those people. It doesn't mean that there those who do get paid salaries in Greece are all like that. There are always a small, even out of the 12 apostles, one of the apostles, Judas, as Christ said, was a devil. He was to betray him, etc. One twelfth of the apostles, one out of the twelve, was um, bad. Christ knew that. Christ knew he was still in the money that people donated, but he didn't do anything. And that's why a lot of times he doesn't do anything now when there are priests who are doing the wrong thing. And he leaves them sometimes. But judgment will occur. We also made precious incense our aim was to build the monastery with the money we set aside. He wanted this money so that he can make in the future a monastery. Remember that this is, we're talking about after the Second World War and after the Second World War because you say to yourself, well, why didn't people give them? Because we have some monasteries here in, in Australia. People give them money, yeah, but that's, that's here. We're living in different times where there is a bit of money to give. But in those days, people were poor. Because they went through the Second World War, where they never had food a lot of times, because the Germans and all that. And then we had the Civil War with the fight against the communists, where again, Greece had not much food. My mother told me that, because she was there during the war, and she actually said that we lived off corta, as they say, like green herbs, where the Germans used to come and take a lot, take away their oil and take away their wheat and things like that. And... Um, Sometimes that's all they lived off. And when they weren't around, they could maybe get some eggs and things like that. But, they were, but the people that were in the villages made it because they could live off natural things. 
the ones in the cities died. A lot of people in Athens starved to death. So that's why he's obviously doing this where he's making money in this way, because I couldn't understand why didn't people give it until I worked out, oh, it's during the war. Actually, speaking about the war, we have a nice little example here. One person writes, one day during the German occupation, Elder Porfirius was walking towards the vicinity of Likavitos, which is, those who have been, it's a big mountain in Greece where you go up with a, like a little train thing and there's a church on top. Anyway, that's not important. He was walking somewhere in Athens. As he was walking along, he came across an unpleasant scene, something not very good. A German soldier had intentionally driven a young girl into a corner by the basement of some house and wanted to dishonour her. And obviously you know what that means. And for those who don't understand, because the words, to, to rape her. She looked like a little bird that had fallen into the claws of a hawk. You could see the horror on her face. She let off some weak cries of struggle and pain from her mouth. The German tried to calm her down with sweet words. The whole neighbourhood had heard the, the, the commotion and were now looking out of their windows and doorways to see what would happen. They saw a priest walking towards the scene. So Elder Porfirio saw that was happening and he, well, obviously the people didn't do anything because if you touch the German, things like that or whatever, you get, they kill and things like that. Some of you lived through those days. You would know better. I never lived through those days. I can only read about it. When Elder, when Elder Porfirios found himself facing this scene, he felt great internal anguish. He even knew himself. What could he do? Well, he was a sickly person. What's he going to do to this big German brute? He had to find a way of saving the girl. Ignoring the danger he was in from the brutal German, the elder directed his footsteps towards him. So in other words, they were down there and the elder started to walk towards the German that was with the girl. As soon as he got close enough, he raised his hands up high. It looked like he was either appealing to the German saying, please don't, or he was asking God to show his mercy. I would probably say the second one, personally, I don't know, but that's my guess. The sight of a priest with his hands raised high, in other words, he was walking like that, his face that was shining, and what's more, the divine strength that he, that he had within him, like it was obvious that he was coming without fear, worked its miracle. The Germans softened, abandoned his intentions, in other words, he stopped what he was going to do, and let the girl free. As Elder Porfirios continued on his way, the people who had followed the events from their houses demonstrated their applause for him, like clapping and were very happy. They cheered as much as they could, as long as they could in those difficult times, meaning that if they overdid it, they could actually get killed, because Germans at that stage didn't like to be put down when they were you know, embarrassed. But... I like that example one. It shows, also there's another example actually, um, Metropolitan Augustinos of Greece. He's, he's now sick. Well, he's he retired now, but I think he's still alive. I think he's over 100 years old. He was um, a gr great hierarch, and he was during the time of the Second World War. And I remember once that 
the German, I can't remember the exact story, I wish I could find that book, but again, there was some conflict of the Germans to do with something, and he actually went up to the Germans, and he looked at them in the face, and he said, no, something maybe to do with food, I'm not sure, to do with kids, and he actually had the guts to stand up. He was a, a, a man of faith, a great man, and as Elder Porfirios, and a lot of our, a lot of our um, saintly hierarchs and priests, who didn't allow the impossible, like to him, it was impossible. As I said, when you look at it in a human way, what is a little priest going to do with this German who's holding a machine gun? With man, it's impossible, but with God, it's possible. It's the same as all of us. In, the, in our life, we come across things that look impossible to solve. And in the same way as Elder Porfirius did, we also must do. That is, raise our hands in prayer and ask God and say, I cannot do anything. That's the best prayer, by the way. I've said this before. The best prayer is when you can't do anything. Finished. That's you just, there's nothing left. It could be to do with sickness. It could be to do with financial. It could be anything. It's finished. That's it. And when we pray to God in those circumstances, admitting that we don't, we haven't got the power, we can't do anything, because a lot of times we're proud and we think that, you know, a lot of times people don't pray to God because they're proud. Like it's hard to bow down and say, God help me, because we feel that we don't need help, that we are good, that we're powerful, that we're strong. The devil puts in our minds that we're powerful, that we're something special. And that's why God allows wars and sicknesses and diseases and other, all these catastrophes to occur in the world. This financial crisis is one of them. People had gone overdone with the credit cards and the credits. And, the, you know, our parents, they bought a house, they paid it off. Now you buy a house, sorry, and they, if, when, when they bought a house, they bought a little bomb, if we can say, like a little, little place, maybe two bedrooms with five kids and the grandmother. And who also knows what was in there? Now, when people get married, they have to have mansions. They have to have two cars. They have to have a boat. They have to have a pool, etc. And the parents are behind trying to say, yes, you must have that. You must start off perfect. We didn't start off perfect, but, you, but we want you to start off perfect. We want you to have everything. And the disaster has occurred all over the world, and now people no longer go with their pride, with their black label, whatever you call those credit cards, gold credit cards and black credit cards and pink and polka dots, whatever they've got, and go to the shops and say, um, I want to buy this and buy that with the pride. You have to see when people buy with credit cards. You actually see that. It's like their chest explodes. They become really proud. I, was, I feel like saying, you know, stupid, it's... Not even your money. It's credit. It's to pay it back. They don't care. Credit, 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 credit. And at the end, this disaster occurred. Now people, now people think twice before they go and have a Big Mac. Before, there was no, there was no, no, no problems. But I'm telling you, I've heard people say, um, I was once on the phone with someone and they said, oh, we haven't even eaten yet because we went from church and we're going home and we haven't got any food and we're hungry. And I said, oh, well, why don't you go and buy something? Why don't you go to the big M, the big yellow M, 
And they said, oh, no, because when you go there, it's 15 bucks. Just a And if you've got children, it might even be 30. I go, yeah, what? what uh, can't afford it. That's good, see? We're, we, in a way, it's bad, but it's good. Good things are coming out of it. And people are returning to the church again, and people are becoming more humble, and people are starting to see that they're not gods with a small g, or some of them think that they're capital G, that they're human beings, and we should be humble in front of God because God created us. That's it. So now we, we have um, question, a few questions, then we go for our break. Yes, your name? Daniel, yes. Earlier you were talking about pride, um, but I understand that, but um, maybe I think, I don't know if you want to make a clarify part of it. It certainly there's two words for pride, but it's also one word for us, which means that, that self love, you know, self service, being on corners, which you don't get positive, self worth, and can you sort of clarify Yes. When I first came into the church, because I wasn't from young, as I said before, uh, the question is, yes, thank you. The question is, our friend here said that there is, uh, in his language, there's the bad pride and good pride. Actually, in the services, in the Orthodox Church services, we say we are proud of the saint that we have, you know, for example... Your question is good, the reason being is because when I first came into the church, it also caused me problems because it's like you're going to walk around with um, this low self-esteem and like a depressed person because you can't be happy or whatever in certain things. There's what's called, as you correctly said, there's a demonic pride where we put ourselves above God, we put ourselves above other people, and we think that we are special. Then there's another pride, which even St. Cosmas says, the Greek saint, where he says, be proud that you're Orthodox Christians, for example. That's one thing. Or, as we've read in the services, Greece glorifies and, you know, and he's, and he's re- re- rejoicing in their saint, St. Haralambos. But the answer to your question is, to be able to understand the difference between the two, or are we allowed to have self-esteem? Are we allowed to uh, feel good about ourselves? Comes with experience in the spiritual life. I, I felt that in the beginning I didn't understand it properly. And to some extent, sometimes I still, because, because we're all brought up in pride, it becomes really difficult where you, to actually be able to separate the two to say, am I being proud in a good way or am I being proud in a bad way? Even the older here, you would say, I, I served so nicely and everyone liked the service. One could say that's a sign of pride, but his humility was great. And it's very difficult to discern exactly which one of our thoughts and which one of our behaviours is bad pride or which one of it is just simplicity where you're happy about something. It could be you make something and you can be happy that you've made something. 
or you've studied something and you can be, you can be happy that you've achieved your degree. It has to be based on God, that God is what gives us the strength to do what we do. And so we say, I finished my degree with God's help. I built my house with God's help. I, I'm happy with what I've done with God's help. This comes a lot with experience and, and, and practice in the spiritual life. And whatever I say to you, oh, so I, I, don't, I don't know your level, whatever, whether you know much in the church or not, it's not important. As time goes on, a person begins to feel when something is bad and when something's good. I'll give you an example. Some of our monastic saints say that when someone's walking along and whistling like that, they say that's a sign of pride. It comes from they feel good about themselves, but not in a godly way. But we don't pick this up because we have been brainwashed and saturated in it from young. We haven't really been brought up in a humble environment like maybe those in the old days were brought up. They were brought up to respect their parents. We're not brought up to respect parents. They were not brought up to respect anything, not even authority, anything. So therefore, today, it's really, really, really difficult to actually explain to someone what's pride. It comes with time as they lead the spiritual life. It begins to become more obvious because they begin to feel it. something yucky. Something's not right there. But Orthodox Christians because they're not meant to be proud in the, in the bad sense, like you said, it doesn't mean that they're unhappy, depressed, melancholic creatures of the earth, because they're not. But they don't need to have that pride which a lot of the worldly people have and, unfortunately, have nothing within them and they're actually, they are quite depressed. The more proud you are in the bad sense, the more depressed you are. So I would say your answer to your question, Daniel, is as follows. The more one leads a spiritual life, the more one reads, the more one prays, the more one begins to understand what's, what's right and what's wrong. I can't give you a formula. It won't work. Because if I was told by someone, um, when we read Elder Paisios last year, someone said to Elder Paisios, there's a priest who says to someone, Come to me and I'll tell you secrets. And when I read that, I said this last year, when I read that to the people, I actually said, I've never heard that before because uh, monastics or people don't do that because it's like a pride. Now that I've read Elder Porfirios, I've realised that who they were referring to was Elder Porfirios. Elder Porfirios did use those type of words and things. And where he said, I serve so beautifully, one would could interpret that as being that he was a proud person, but he wasn't. Can you, can you see what I'm saying? What is said by one person can be demonic, and what the same thing said by someone else can be... How do we know which is which? It comes from the person's spiritual life, where after a while, God enlightens them to be sensitive. Don't do that. Don't speak like that. Don't act like that. And then you begin to know what's right and what's wrong. There's no formula. Yes? That's, the, that, that, that's actually good, what, what you said, that God created and he said it is good, but God, what he does, does with no passion. When Elder Porfirio said what he says, he didn't do it with passion. When God punishes people as well, 
when he causes earthquakes or things like that. Elder Porfirio says he does it, but with no passion. When you discipline your children, sometimes when there's some physical, as I said, which should be used here apparently because people belt for anything, but even that, it should not be done with passion. It should be done out of love. One person can hit their child with passion, revenge, irritation. Another person can hit their child but have no passion in them, but are they doing it out of love so that the child can learn? A priest can tell someone off and in his heart there's no passion. Another priest can tell the person off, but in their heart they're full of anger. So sometimes with myself, I notice I can tell someone, say to someone they're doing wrong. Sometimes in my heart I feel anger. That's no good. Sometimes I don't feel it. That's okay. But you've got to... This, this comes with time. So God said all those things, but with no passion, there is no pride in God. And the saints, sometimes saints such as Elder Porphyrios, get to the stage where they speak like that because they are so much, they've got the Holy Spirit, that they're not saying it out of pride. But someone can appear to be saintly and he's speaking like that and he's got a devil in them. How do we know? Discernment comes with experience. I'm discovering more as I'm reading books, even as I read Elder Porfirios, I'm reading him and I'm discovering, oh, didn't think of that. I can see now there that I was acting out of pride. Before I didn't pick it up. As long as it's not based on passion, on and a person to be, we're supposed to have humility. We, a lot of times in this society that we live in, don't understand humility because it doesn't much exist. It's very difficult to find. In the old days, there was more people that were humble. I remember, as I said, when I went to Greece, I would see my grandmother um, when I was there. I was only young, and I was staying in the same room because there's no room over there. And I saw her just do a bit of prayers before she goes to bed. And I was there. But to her, I wasn't in the church then, but to her it was like I wasn't even there. And it was very simple. And she wasn't as if to say, like we do when we do prayers, where we say, oh, everyone's looking at us. They think we're good. That's pride. But we're supposed to do it where we, where we, we don't have that. Like, like a few, two weeks ago, where we celebrated the Pharisee and the publican. Humility comes with time and comes with practice. There's no formula. Any other questions? Why do we have more pride now than the old days? Because the way of life was simple. It was village life and they lived close to nature as well and their, their um, evil was not as... It was feared. Like someone to go and do an abortion was feared. Someone to go and do adultery was feared. You know, to do those things, it was like just, you just didn't, just didn't do it. I remember my mother said that she didn't even... The, the, that she said when they were in the village in the, when she was young... For example, there was, she doesn't remember anyone depressed. 
people can say, oh, because they didn't know about it then. When someone's depressed, you know about it, because most of the time they're not around the next few days or months or years. But, but today, especially because of television, where the child's put in front of the television and they're just conditioned, brainwashed to not be in reality and to, and to have pride, and society says it's not bad to be a homosexual, it's not bad to do an abortion, women's rights, and it's not bad to, you know, if someone wants to have, wants to have an uh, extramarital affair, if you want a divorce, don't worry about it. And they say, so it's all part of life, so it's easy. And plus, when someone's watching television, they're watching the same thing every day. Like, before, uh, uh, the devil had to come along and bring images in the person and try to say, why don't you be, you know, why don't you go and betray the honour of your wife? Why don't you commit adultery? And the person would kind of be shocked with that. But when the person's watching TV every day and watching those people fall into those sins continually, it's, there's no longer the devil bringing the image. It's actually the television is right there and it's full details and the noise effects and everything else that it has. And then all that goes into the person and that person can no longer resist. They can't, they can't because it's just there. And that's why it's easy to fall. Pedophiles, for example, they themselves even say that, you know, they... they um, in the old days, someone might have had thoughts and it was exceptional for someone to fall. These days, they go on the internet and they watch uh, horrible images of those things. And what happens then when they're watching it is after a while, then they go to act because you can't just stop at an image. After a while, you get brainwashed, you get conditioned and you go and fall. And the other reason is medication. Um, Psychiatric medication didn't exist in those days. Today, as I said, some psychiatric medicine is necessary for some people, but not to the point that they've done now where millions of people are on it. What happens with, with a lot of these antidepressants is that it makes you lose your will. It makes you weak internally. You, it's, that's, what, that's why they call mind-altering drugs. They affect your mind. And that's why a lot of people that I know who actually started to take that stuff would do things that they wouldn't do before because they were embarrassed or they had the strength not to do it. So you now, because they're on that, those medications, they actually would do, like, for example, a young person hates people because they put him down and he would have revenge in his mind, but he wouldn't fulfil that revenge a lot of times. But with the drugs, illegal, or with the legal drugs, with the antidepressants, that your, what's called your, um, what's that word called? Your inhibitions, what usually stops you inside of you, is, is dropped. Your guard's dropped. And what happens then is that those people will go out and do it. And that's why all those shootings in America, and soon to be here, all those high school shootings, the Virginia Tech, etc. they say that all those kids were on antidepressants or were coming off antidepressants. And also, finally, they're putting on the boxes of antidepressants, this can cause suicide. Some people can get suicidal thoughts but won't do it 
But when they go on that stuff a lot of times, they don't have their, their wits about them and they will do it. And that's why it's written on the, on the um, label. So um, if they did statistics properly, but the, but the drug companies won't do it because they go out of business, if they really did their research properly, go and look at all the people committing crimes, go and look at all the pedophiles, go look at all those who do rapes, go look at all those who do crimes and see how much of them are on this stuff, legal or illegal, but let's just say legal. And that's why today sin is more easy. Uh, does that answer your question? And that's it. I think we're getting late. Break now for um, 10 minutes. Have whatever you like. This particular elder had a love of learning. He loved even to read books, even on secular matters. And well, I'll just read some of his words. He says, whenever someone came and told me about a bodily pain, I made it a matter for prayer. So first he would pray. Always, we should always base our life on prayer, always asking God for guidance and help. This fact also incited me to study. When I saw a sick part of the body, I wanted to know its scientific name and the position of all the organs in the human body, the bile, the pancreas, etc. So I bought medical books on anatomy, physiology, etc. in order to study and understand. For a time, indeed, I intended class at the medical school to acquire fuller knowledge. My thirst for learning extended to all fields. He just loved learning. I wanted to learn everything in all its depth and breadth. If I visited a factory, I wanted to learn every detail about how it operated. If I visited a museum, I would spend hours examining the sculptures. He even studied uh, poultry farming, which we'll see later on, like how to take care of chickens, because he made money out of that. And um, he even learned how to take care of bees for honey. This thing about learning, we're going to notice a contradiction in the church. We have certain saints who would not even touch secular things. And we have other saints who would read things. Like, for example, we have saints that say, oh, philosophy... Greek philosophy, like the old ancient stuff, forget about that. They wouldn't touch it. We have certain saints that did read the Greek philosophers and took out some good things from it. We have, for example, Elder Nectarius of Optina, who was given a blessing to read secular books on all topics, history, geography, etc. He had this thing about learning. While many of the other Optina elders of Russia wouldn't touch the other books. All they did was study spiritual things. We get in the... We, and people become confused and they say, this elder doesn't touch worldly things, so therefore all worldly things bad. Psychology's bad, medicine's bad, that's bad, that's bad, this is bad, you know, everything's bad. And we have other saints that say, no, it's not bad, we can get some good things out of these things. In the case of Elder Porfirios... He was that way inclined. He loved to read other things, not just spiritual, other things. You will read when you read the lives of saints that there were others who wouldn't touch that other stuff and actually would put it down and say it's darkened and it's godless and it's this, it's that. One person's a saint and the other person's a saint. One would love to read those books and others didn't. Again, it shows that we can't make rules, it depends. 
Personally, for me, I like to read about other things. That's my, myself. But there are others, particular monks or nuns, who don't want to touch that stuff. That's okay too. We have in the church both. So this elder, he learnt about these things. It doesn't mean that he wasn't a lot of times enlightened. I read in his life that the doctors would often let him sit in their meetings when they would discuss patients because they, and they would ask his opinion because a lot of times what he said was correct. That was through enlightenment. So when you read Lives of Saints, don't become confused and don't become fanatical. We have the desert, for example, the desert fathers, a lot of monastics, a lot of ascetics wouldn't touch a secular book. But we have St. Basil the Great and other people like that who actually did read those books. St. Nikolai, the Serbian saint, would read other books. St. Eustin Bobovich read a lot of books. He read a lot of Western books too. And there were other great saints of the, in Manathos who, as I said, didn't touch them. I think the problem occurs is when, it, when the person is taken over and can't handle even Elder Porfirios, he used to love listening to the news. And why? He said, he used to say, I wanted to know what's going on in the world. I wanted to know what disaster occurs, what's happening in the world so I can, so I can pray about it. But there are other saints who never, ever knew anything about what's going on in the world. Some of them still knew what was going on through enlightenment. Some of them were just, just prayed for the world Continually, and that's all they did, and didn't really. Only if someone would come to the desert after many years, they would say, Who's the emperor now? or Who's what's happening? What's happening in the church? Because they might have not seen someone for 20, 30 years. So there's all different, different um, uh, things. After 15 years of working in the hospital, in about in 1955, so remember, he went to the hospital in 1940, 15 years later, he leased a small monastery called St. Nicholas, which is in Calicia, which is somewhere at the edge of Athens, which belongs to the, to the holy monastery of Pendeli. Pendeli is a great, is a very famous monastery in Greece. And each monastery had little properties, and that was one property, and they gave him, he, he rented that from them. It was he that he wanted to make a convent. His dream was he wanted to make a monastery. So he leased that, he rented that, that property up, which um, had a little chapel to St. Nicholas. And he began to himself, he began to cultivate the land and he put a lot of hard work into it. He fixed up the wells. He made an irrigation system, soaking water, like he made machines and pipes and things like He planted around 400 trees himself, walnut trees, plum trees, pear trees, apple trees, peach trees, almond, hazelnut, etc. He made a big garden. He used digging machines that he worked himself in order to produce a vegetable garden. He found various ways of collecting money also for the future convent. One example was that he actually had a chicken farm which had 1,000 chickens. And from that, obviously, he made money to be able to make the future, build more of the, of the um, future monastery. Apart from this, he still was on call 
24 hours a day that he would go to the hospital because he was still part of the hospital. He still worked for the hospital as a priest and a confessor. Some people think that monastics are lazy. You hear that, you know, oh, monastics are lazy. Monastics have an easy life. Monks are bludgers, nuns are bludgers, this and that. And it's good for those who think that is to go to a monastery, and I've seen this happen, and uh, those people who think that the life is, is easy and, and only bludgers do that life, a lot of them don't last more than a couple of hours. One, they, are, they either can't take the fasting, so they run off. Two, a lot of them can't take the work, so they run off. Or three, the demons start to fight them and they run off. Fourthly, they can't even pray. And some people say, oh, monks and nuns, all they do is pray all day. People in the world can't even pray for five minutes. It's so difficult. So if someone can pray for a long time, especially the monastics, it's, it's actually really good and it's actually from God that they can do it because it is very difficult to pray. When I first started as a priest, I was quite inexperienced, but anyway, still am, but in those days, and I used to give people prayer rules. I would say to them, okay, why don't you do these prayers? And sometimes it would take around half an hour to do. And if they didn't do it, I used to get upset and go, well, you're not doing your prayers. You have to do prayers. So that comes from ignorance, you see, inexperience. Now, if I, so that was for half an hour. Now, if someone told me that they prayed for half a minute, I go, oh, that's, that's really good. I'm, I'm impressed that you even did half a minute. It's that hard for people to do prayers. So don't think that praying is easy. It's not. Try it and you'll see. Well, there's no need to say more than that. So he got the job at the hospital in, in 1940. In 1970, which is 30 years he served in the hospital, it was time for him to retire. And he received a small pension. However, because they couldn't find a priest, he stayed another three years at the hospital, helping, but at the same time he still had this, this little monastery that he was building and things like that. And he would go to the hospital so that he could visit his spiritual children because this place that he rented, which was in Calicia, that St. Nicholas place, there it was uh, through the forest and it was very difficult. There was no road and it was very difficult to get there. So a lot of people couldn't get there. So when they wanted to see him, they would go to the hospital to see him. There was no road, as I said. And it was actually quite a few kilometres through forest to get to this little place that he was at. Finally, around 1973, after 33 years of work in the hospital, he began to cut down just about completely his work at the hospital and he started to receive people at the other monastery at Calicia, and where he began to serve liturgy and heard confession. When you read the book, which there are three books, I'm going to get another one next, next month, on Elder Porfirios, there's this one, which has his life in more detail and his teachings. This one is a spiritual child of his that speaks about him, excellent book. And this one, which we're going to do in the next talk, are encounters, people that met him and what he did, miracles and all these type of things. 
And in this book, you see that sometimes they refer to this place, Calicia, and they would say that it would be very far and difficult to get to. People were so desperate to see him that they actually would make that difficult journey to go and see him. And that's how it always is. When there's someone holy, when, when, when someone is truly a spiritual person, people will come from all over the world, America or whatever, they would go. People would ring him, even people would ring him from every part of the world just to get his prayers, just to get his advice, his blessing. He had many illnesses. Not only the illness that he had from when he was in Mount Athos when he got sick with pleurisy, but he had a number of other ones. One, he had hernia. And the reason why he had hernia is because he would carry heavy loads to, to his house that he used to live in the hills. Not to this monastery, probably that as well, but his house. He would carry stock there because there was no road even for that. He used to go up mountains and on rocks and things like that. He got hernia from that. Another one was that the director of the hospital, when he was at the hospital, told him not to have an operation for the kidneys. He says, don't have it yet because Easter's coming up, Holy Week's coming up. Please don't go and have an operation because then there'll be no priest to serve in the chapel at the hospital. So he did obedience, and even though that, that affected his health, so he could serve Easter and Holy Week. He actually got into a coma because he got so sick. The doctors told his relatives to prepare for his funeral, however, by God's will, and despite what the doctors were saying that he's not going to live, the elder became better and continued his service to the church. But he was quite a sick. Another one was um, when he broke his leg. I wanted to read it, but it's too long. He broke his leg. He was walking um, on those rocks, I think, probably going to his home. He broke his leg. They put in plaster. With his, because of his enlightenment, he actually realised that they didn't set the leg properly. They didn't set the bone properly. And he told the doctors, he said, um, X-ray, the, X-ray my leg again because you haven't done it properly. It's not set properly. And they said, you keep to your priest's job and don't tell us what to do. That's, Daniel, what we say about pride. That's a good example, isn't it? Yeah, you keep to your priest's work and we will look to that. Like when you go to those takeaway places, you know what I mean there? So you go there and you say... Um, oh, you know, the food's not very, the food's cold or not cooked properly. And you know what's been happening lately, that people have been getting food back defiled. So you don't know what you're eating. You don't know anymore. And we know about that example at the, um, somewhere in Sydney. And uh, these are proud people. You cannot say anything. If I ever buy anything from the shops, never complain. I never complain. Because I know that you're going to, you know, it's a very high chance that they'll spit in it and things like that. Anyway, this doctor's like he works at McDonald's basically, and he says, um, you, um, you keep to your, to your priest stuff. And he goes, I'm telling you, the bone is not set properly. And they uh, really upset the doctors. Finally, they went down and x rayed it, and they found that, it, that he was right. He actually, he actually, with his enlightenment from God, he was right. And then the, then the, um, the doctor says, now we're going to have to re-break your leg to set it again. So they broke the plaster and then, oh, this, I think it's, um, I like this one, he goes, um, 
Evening came and again they brought me food and again I didn't eat, insisting that they take a look at my leg. He actually, this time he was insisting because he knew that if, they, if the leg sets like that, he'll actually walk funny. The next morning, the big doctor came and he said, you know, in an irritated way, he goes, what's all the nonsense, Papa? Because that's what he's saying in Greek, Papa, priest. Are you taken to wasting our time in here? In the end, they took me to the x-rays. They saw that, indeed, they set my leg, my leg crooked. And what's more, it had healed. So the consultant started to laugh. Poor Papa, he said, you must be a real sinner. Now you'll see what you have to go through. We'll have to break your leg and reset it properly. So the doctor, because he was offended was getting pleasure in what he was going to do now to the elder, which was to break his leg. They started to hammer the plaster to break it. I said nothing, but only prayed within myself. So you're not saying anything now, said the doctor. But now I'm going to forgive you all your sins. Get it? Sarcastically. And with a sudden movement, they pulled and removed the plaster. I was in great pain. Two doctors held my leg and the the proud one, started, I'm, I'm saying that, the, the consultant started punching my shin with his fist to break it. Now you'll see, Papa, he said, I'll forgive all your sins and all my own will be forgiven as well. I remember the life of St. Vladimir, first martyr of the Russian church with the communists. Uh, he was the first martyr, Bishop Vladimir. Yeah, Metropolitan. Anyway, when the communists captured him, they wanted to kill him. And he said, give me a few minutes to pray. And they said, okay, and then we'll give you communion, they said, sarcastically, like this beast. And so the, if I remember right, I could have mixed the stories up, but I think that's what it is. So then the bishop prayed, and then he blessed with both hands the ones who were going to kill him and said, God forgive you. And then they said, okay, now we're going to commune you. And they put the gun in his mouth and shot him. And that was the, what they were saying sarcastically. He's doing the same here, sarcastically. I'm going to forgive you your sins. Now, you, yeah, they said about breaking the bone. It already healed a little and I was in unbearable pain. I bit my lip. In the end, they broke it. They laid me down once again under the x-ray, pulled my leg and brought it back onto its axis, make it straight. Then they carefully put on the plaster and sent me back to my bed. And he suffered for two, three months after that, etc. These days, you've got to be very careful. People have become so off, you cannot criticise, again, back to Daniel's question, but the pride, that's pride. When someone tells you you've done something wrong and you can't take it, like, you can't even say today anything to a doctor, you can't, to some doctors, you can't reprimand, you can't say anything to a nurse when you're in hospital sometimes, you can't say anything to anyone, because they become offended and then you don't know if they're going to sabotage. Sabotage your treatments to do, to do something bad, you don't know anymore. Some people think it's okay to go and complain. And we've got to be careful because sometimes the person who you're complaining about is a psycho and who actually can come and do bad to you. I used to complain. Now I'm very careful. I don't complain much anymore. It's better to be humble, plus I don't want to get my head punched in. And there's, and there's all different people who can do bad. They like, it's called revenge. You've got to be very, very careful, especially you that have children. Yes, it's okay to get even and say, I'm, I'm going to win my way. But remember, you also got children. I remember an electrician who actually, 
he actually uh, took someone to court that owed him money, and I said to him, I wouldn't do that. He goes, no, I've got the right. He owes me $4,000. I go, leave the money. Don't worry about the money because sometimes people become nasty. And so he took these people to court and then the court took the money out of the person's bank. And later on he started getting phone calls saying, I'm going to kill your wife, I'm going to kill your children, etc., etc. And then he basically gave the money back. I said, I told you, just leave it alone. You, today... People are not well. It's very dangerous. When, you, when you've got to protect your family, you protect it. But sometimes, as Saint, one of the apostles says in the epistles, I think it was Saint Paul or even Christ, when they take something, oh, no, sorry, um, the epistles, when they rob you, sometimes it's just better let them go. Don't, you know, just let it go and God will see you and reward you. Just be very careful. You've got to have discernment whether to do something or not to do something. And this is where the elder had that discernment. He would say, yes, pursue it, don't pursue it. If someone comes up to me and says something, I don't know what to say. Sometimes I don't know. I say to the person, pray and ask God to enlighten you. Should you pursue the matter? Should you say anything? You know, it's very, very dangerous times. People are not very well these days. There's more and more and more mental illness uh, and that comes from sin, but it also just comes from people that have been abused when they were young, they weren't taken care of, people that are mixed up. There's a lot of issues today. He had a heart attack in 1978 and he was rushed to hospital where he remained for 20 days. After leaving the hospital, he had to live in the homes of some of his spiritual children. The reason being is because the place of St. Nicholas is the little convent that he wanted to build there had no road, as we said before, and he couldn't walk. There's no way he could walk there because he would die. His house had no basic comforts, the other house that he had in the hills, and he also had to be near the doctors. So he lived in Athens with his spiritual children during the time that he was sick. But after that heart attack, his health did deteriorate and he couldn't see as many people as he could before. He had to cut down on his um, seeing people because he just couldn't do it. He was in a lot of pain. I met him years ago, and as I said before, I don't like speaking about my own experience, but some of you have told me that, that they like it if I say from my own experiences because it becomes more effective. So if that becomes more effective, I'll do it. But if you listen to my older talks, I rarely said anything about myself. If I did, I'll disguise it. But now people say, no, I like it because you, you, it becomes more effective as a, as a way of getting the message across. So I'll say my experience as a help. I went there in 1989, and he died in 1991. He was very sick at that time, but that was at another place he was at, which we'll learn in a minute. And he, and as the picture is in his book, there's a, oh, I don't know what the picture is, but he's on a bed, he's on the bed, he's wearing a glove because he had really bad skin problems, and he's holding a wooden cross, and he was crouched over, very sick, barely could talk because his tongue actually grew excessively, so he couldn't really... Sometimes he couldn't talk properly. Very sick and blind. He had become blind because some doctors made mistakes, gave him a wrong medication, and he became totally blind after. And that's how I met him. So I went with uh, uh, some people. I wasn't a priest then. And I went there, and I had one thing in mind. I wanted to see this person because I wanted to ask him, because of my, of my desire 
to become a priest, but I was too scared because even though I had been in Greece and I had some uh, uh, one bishop who said, oh, no, no, I'll make you, I was, or because the bishop said it, I was not convinced. I wanted to know, is it meant to be? Just like when you're going to marry someone. I've said this last time, last year. When you're going to marry someone, or when you're going to become a monk, or a nun, or you're going to become a priest, or whatever, always seek God's will to know whether it's the right thing for you. People just marry someone, they don't pray at all. When you marry someone, that's for you people, especially the world, that are lay people, one of the biggest prayers that you should do is to, the most that you should pray is pray who to marry. Not just look at someone and go, oh, I like that person and I feel good with that. You know, these type of things don't really work. Pray to God because God knows who is for you. Today's a lot of disasters because no one asked God, which is right. Um, so I went there because I wanted to know. I had been earlier to Elder Paisios as well, a few years earlier, when I was a bit younger. Uh, I wasn't 30 yet. I was young, I forgot, 27 maybe, who knows. But I went to Elder Paisios and I said to him my thoughts and he said, put it in the fridge. What does that mean? Put it in the fridge. Sorry? Leave it for a while. Not no, just put it in the fridge. That was his advice. And I asked him, you pray. Please pray for me. Then I went to this elder, but this elder, what happened? Couldn't speak. He was sick. He was on the bed like this, and he was really old and like, really sick. So I wanted, because I heard that he was a very holy person, and I wanted his prayers. I wanted something. So I got a piece of paper as we left after we kissed the cross. I got a piece of paper, and I wrote in my broken Greek, because I can't write Greek properly, I wrote, a little message. Please pray for me. This is my desire, but I don't know what, you know, things like that. And I gave it to one of the nuns there. And I said, can you please give him that? And that was it. I gave him that. And I believe that through the prayers of these elders, slowly, slowly, God brought me to where I am now. But that's because we always have to ask, all of us, not just me, all of you, for everything, Always ask God to bless. That's a sign of humility as well. Pride, you don't ask anyone. You don't even listen to your parents. Don't listen to no one. Just do what you want. So that was my experience. That's the only experience that I have. But I believe that the message got to him and I believe in his prayers. That was in 1989, I think. And then he died in 1991 and I became a priest in 1991. And... I believe that all of us should never make decisions without always asking God. And even when we think we know what God's will is, we always should be careful and praying continually not to make a mistake. Many people make mistakes. In particular with marriages today, a lot of mistakes. As I've told you, this is the elder speaking, as I've told you, I've been hearing confession for more than 50 years. Now he's speaking as an older person. I would let the person making confession speak at length about whatever he wanted, and at the end I would say something. While he was talking away, 
not only about personal matters, I would observe what his soul was like. From his whole attitude, I understood his state. At the end, I would say something to be of benefit. Sometimes when we go to priests to confess because of time restrictions, and some people speak about other things, the priest says, no, no, just sins. Just tell me your sins. And, uh, you know, that's because of the time problem. And especially when you go to church during Lent, when there's a 50, 60 people outside, that's why it's good to go to priests when it's not during Lent. Confess and go to for spiritual guidance not in the busy times, when the priest can have more time to speak to you. Anyway, he would, he would meet people who he never even knew and he would listen to them and let them say whatever they wanted. And then from that, with God's enlightenment, he would begin to understand the person. I would observe what his soul was like. From his whole attitude, I understood his state and at the end I would say something to benefit him. And even things that weren't of a personal nature, nevertheless, had some kind of relationship to him to the state of his soul. So in other words, even as I said, he spoke about other things, even not to do with him, the elder was able, by listening to that, to know what's in his soul. That's, that's the discernment. And all the people would come for confession, were very happy with me because I didn't speak to them and they said freely whatever they want. In other words, what he means here is that he didn't butt in. He kind of let them speak. And if there was someone who had little connection with the church or who mentioned to me some sin of somewhat more serious nature, I didn't draw attention to the matter particularly. So in other words, when someone wasn't going to church often, someone who wasn't a church goer, in other words, would come to him and say to him a serious sin, he wouldn't react on purpose so as not to make that person to become upset or negative and then go away and never come back again. This, this is interesting. And at the end of the confession, I would say something about the serious fault, like when he could fit it in. I would say something about the sin that he confessed. Thus, I didn't show complete indifference, but nor did I emphasise it, depending on the person. If it's someone who goes to church all the time and they say something serious, then of course you're going to say, what have you done? That's not right. Someone who doesn't go to church, what you've got to be a bit more careful. It depended on the circumstances. It might uh, on, I might even on occasion display indifference. At the end, I would say, my child, for everything you have said, the Lord has forgiven you. Take care from now on and be sure to pray so that the Lord will strengthen you and that after so many days, go and receive communion. And this is also important on the communion. In Greece, they still keep the, and, in, and even the Greek churches here, they still keep a bit of the old tradition. If people have done serious sins, they don't let them commune. They don't use the old serious canons like 10, 15 years. They might say, you know, commune next year on Christmas or commune Easter, which is five months away and things like that, to give a person a chance to repent more and to give a person a chance to, to struggle. In Greece, they do it a lot too. Unfortunately, in many other churches, they don't do that and whoever comes to confession just communes. Uh, this happened in Russia before the revolution. And um, Greece, which has preserved a lot the spiritual life, actually keep to those things of some people they're not ready to commune. And I would say that that's probably why Greece is stronger as an orthodox country. Another reason probably why the communists could not take over Greece. Another thing 
that they did in Russia was that they didn't allow people to become great schemers when they were monks, but they actually would say great schemers are only for those who are ascetics. That's a special thing that monks and nuns become. So only if you were in the desert or if you lived in a tree or you lived in a cave and no one was around or you lived a really a life where you didn't speak, only then you were given this great schema. But in Greece that's not true because in Greece they actually make people after a certain number of years great schemers. St Nicodemus the Athenite says you don't make people who are half in their graves great schemers when they're so old they can't even do spiritual struggle. You give the great schema to young people so that they can use the grace that they receive from the great schema to struggle in their uh, monastic life. So some of you don't understand what I'm talking about. That doesn't matter. But the others who do, uh, these are practices that occur in the church. Not all practices and not all rules that churches do is correct. I'll tell you one which is shocking. I, I actually I have to use a bit of in a cryptic way because of the children. But um, when the Turks attacked Cyprus in 1974, they did atrocities and a lot of women became pregnant, And which to me is beyond comprehension. How the church actually said it was okay to get rid of the, th of the um, embryo, I would say. And... You just say to yourself, how can a church do that? Like, so what I'm trying to say there is obviously that was later on, that was wrong, and they, and they reversed it. But we've got to be careful. Not all decisions that are made is necessarily correct. And that's one of them. And Elder Epiphanius, which is, we've got a book there called Councils of Elder Epiphanius, he was... Um, uh, and this saint, he was very strict too. He goes, if you do that, I will not pray for you. Don't come to me anymore if you ever do such a thing. So synods can make mistakes. It was a synod that actually, if you read in the book that we produced on the curse grid icon, it was a synod that defrocked St. John Chrysostom. So we've got to be very careful of what's right and what's wrong. Anyway, it's a bit heavy for some of you, but nevertheless, just bear that in mind and... Just have it there, put it in the, as in the fridge, like Elder Paiso says, and you might need it in the future when you hear something and go, oh, because the sin had said it, then we have to do it. This particular elder, he actually was more free and he actually would say to someone, go and have communion. Now, the question is this. Why did he do that when the majority of spiritual fathers in Greece were saying to people not to commune for three months, four months, one year, etc. Why? And I've been thinking about this quite a lot, and I think that the answer is, if I can say with you, is that um, his boldness with God was such, and we've, and we've already read this before, that some saints were so enlightened and so much with God that they would take the sin of people on them. St John of Cronstadt, for example, he would even commune the whole church when they hadn't even confessed. Very exceptional thing. But that's not for us to do. This elder did that, and it depends on the person's disposition. But he did it a lot. And I believe that it's because he was such a holy person, and that's an exception. 
The best thing is penance. A lot of times penance is very good. It has, it's therapeutic. If someone, for example, is living with someone in sin and they go to the priest to confess, then the priest has to say, you have to remove yourself. You have to stop living in that way. And then I will read you the prayer, for example. Even some priests don't even read the prayer. Did you steal something? Then the priest would say, give it back. When you've given it back, come back and then I'll read you the prayer. If a person is committing adultery, cheating on their wife or cheating on their husband, same thing. Leave the person who you're doing that with, stop that, and then come and then I'll read you the prayer and then we'll see that for you to commune. But not because the person comes and goes, oh, I'm sorry, boo-hoo-hoo, and then they say, I've done wrong, and the priest goes, oh, did you? Okay. Uh, and, and as soon as I leave from here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop it. St. John the Baptist didn't do that. St. John the Baptist says, show fruits of repentance. And what's the explanation for that? Because St. John the Baptist knew that, the, that sin is difficult to stop. And it wasn't enough for someone to come and say, I stole, or I did this and I did that. St. John the Baptist says, show fruits of repentance. Prove that you're sorry. You stole, give it back. You're fornicating, stop. Go back to your wife, go back to your husband. There are certain sins which need to be stopped. And then the priest reads the prayer. But today, a lot of times, just read the prayer and you go, oh, are you going to leave? You're going to leave that person? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once a person came to me years ago and had that problem. Cheating. And I said to them, um, I want you to stop. I want you not to ring that person and I want you not to go to that person. And she said, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it, do it. Read me the prayer. I said, no, I'm not reading you the prayer. And it went on, and it went on. I said, come back in one week, and then let's see how you've gone in one week. She couldn't even last one day. Rang up again, say and see the person, etc., etc. One day, then I said, okay, again, and again, and again, and then she left. But she wouldn't leave the person. Why should I read the prayer on that person and give word to God? Do you think it's harsh? That's how it is. And this important thing here, he said, besides the person is not exclusively responsible for his mistake, the elder would say that when a person sins, it's not entirely their fault. It's the demons, it's, na it's their fallen nature. It can be from weakness. It can be because that's the way they were brought up. There's a lot of reasons why people sin. Once he was doing holy water when he was in Athens. In Greek, uh, I think they do the same here. When it's Theophania, you know, the baptism of Christ, the priests go to all, they go to all their parishioners in the, in, the, in the village or in the city. Each priest has got the certain neighbourhood, that's his parishioners. So he goes with the water, with the, the um, vasiliko, the um, basil, and he goes to the houses. So what they do is they knock on the door, and as soon as they knock on the door, he just walks in and starts singing in Yordani, you know, which is the, the trapari. So he, he goes in, and this woman says, no, 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 you can't come in. And he goes, why? No, no, you can't. And all of a sudden, out of all the rooms came these women. 
Um, there's a whole lot of rooms with a whole lot of women. And then he realised what happened. He realised that where he had stumbled on to accidentally, he went into a brothel accident, by accident. And the woman, the madame, was saying to him, no, 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 these people, this, they cannot be sprinkled, they cannot kiss the cross. Now, the Porfirios thought to himself, for me to be here, this, this is the way he thought, God must have arranged it. Maybe there's a reason for me to be here. He didn't walk out. If a priest walks out, he wouldn't do wrong either. This is exceptional. You know, I'm, you know you're not going to see me down at King's Cross with green, with green basil and, and um, sprinkling all down there. It's not me. But if someone else did it and they can do it, that's good. That, that, that would be good, going through the streets and sprinkling everyone. So he realised that God had brought him here, so he allowed all the women to kissed the cross and he sprinkled them holy water and he said to all of them, God loves you. And she was saying, the old crow there was saying, no, no, don't, 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 this and that. And then he goes, maybe you don't deserve to kiss the cross because she was the one that was like that. He goes, they're going to kiss the cross. So he actually made all the, well, the women that came up to him and he said, God loves you. That's quite an exceptional thing. Some people are in certain situations for not fully their own reasons. And I've said this before. Once I said here, we shouldn't, sometimes we shouldn't even judge certain people like even magicians who are doing evil because they don't really think that they're serving the devil. They actually think that they're doing good, that they've got powers. We've got to be careful who we judge. We judge ourselves. If we as Orthodox go and get our palms read or get our coffee read, or get our cards read, whatever they do, then that's a sin. Judge ourselves. I said, as for those people who do it, well, we don't know. And a lot of those people believe that they are with God. A lot of those people believe that they're doing good. And I said that, and then someone said, oh, my spiritual father said that you are supportive of that. And I said, I'm a... I'm a bit confused because I bought about a hundred books and gave them out to all people for free on, on magic. I've done so many talks on the topic. I talk about it every single serve, uh, every single talk, and actually, I think I talk about it more than any priest. And I'm not saying that of pride, but I'm just that's I think I, that's my nature. That's the way I am, and I'm supportive of the magicians and things like that. Well, anyway, I don't, I don't understand. But anyway, now we can even say, and some did, some actually said that Elder Porfirios was a liberal, liberal priest because he would allow young people to come to him who were leading uh, bad lives and he would talk to them and he would bless them even though he knew that they were doing uh, ba uh, bad things people on drugs, etc., and some, some priests who were more liberal would say, see, that's good that he's doing that, and some would say, that's bad that he's doing that, so it's like you can't win. And in this example, some would say, he should have left. Got to be strict. You don't go and sprinkle prostitutes with holy water, you know, for example. But he did that, and that was exceptional. And I, from what I've read that he actually changed a lot of those people 
from his love, from his prayers. So that's why he says here that sin is not entirely the person's fault. As we said last time, that some people have been brought up from young to steal. Say there's a young child and his father taught him to steal from young. Steal, steal, steal continually. When that child grows up, it's in his system. He can't help it. And um, Elder Paisos, I think, said that, you know, if that person tries to stop, it would be very hard because it's part of his nature. But he's repentant. He's trying to stop. So if he's got an opportunity to steal 20 things a day, he might only steal five things a day. In God's eyes, he could be better than all of us who don't steal, say, for example. Or ask to go to church. But then you might say, but he's doing a sin. How can he be better than someone who goes to church and confesses and communes and prays and reads books? Because God looks at how much a person's trying to stop sin. We've said this before. We have an Orthodox Christian here and we have an Orthodox Christian over here. Two people. This person, he puts in this much effort not to do sins and he succeeds. But he doesn't have to put much effort. Because maybe he was brought up in a more Christian way or he's just, he's just got a... It's just easy for him. He doesn't have to do much not to sin. So he puts in that much effort. This person over here has to put in that much effort not to do sins. In God's eyes, this person, even though he doesn't do any real serious sins, is not rewarded as much as this person because God looks at how much the person's trying, how much the person wants to stop. In school, maybe when they're younger, we can say, okay, the child puts a certain amount of effort. So we can say effort A. A. They put a lot of effort. But their mark's still 20%. So basically they still fail, but we put A, at least they've got effort. And in the beginning, that's okay. But when they do the big, like a HSC or something like that, on the HSC, it says... Your ranking was whatever. You came in the last 10% in New South Wales. Uh, and there's nothing there to say effort. Maybe the person really did put a lot of effort into it. But there's nothing there and no one's going to give him a job because he got, he's got a good effort. They're going to look at... Sorry, to go into university, sorry I should say. If he hasn't got it, he hasn't got it. But in the church, God doesn't look like that. doesn't look at marks. Because we think he looks at the marks. He does a lot of prayers. He does a lot of fasts. In God's eyes, he's good. But no, not necessarily. One person who does a lot of prayer, it might be easy for them. Because they learnt from young, for example. While someone else can do prayer, and for them to go into the icons to pray, it's like they're coughing up blood. It's that hard. It's like it's so difficult even to do their cross. It's just so difficult. In God's eyes, he's better even if he does one little bow with difficulty and says, God, help me, while the other person can be praying all night, but easily. In God's eyes, this person is better. But we don't know who's trying and who's not. Spiritual fathers get to know through the confession. But in general, we don't know. So we could be judging someone who's doing sins and say, oh, they're no good. But we don't know how much that person wants to stop. Remember the story I told you that once I saw some young kids that I knew when I was, well, when I was younger, but I saw them later on as a priest. 
And um, this guy was on, he's been on drugs since, I don't know, to me it's like the day he was born, but anyway, he's just completely out of it. Every day, every day, every day, he he's, he's just smokes that stuff. And he, I asked him in the beginning, do you like doing that? He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, it's really fantastic and this and that. But then later on when his friends weren't around and then he um, got him, I got him a little bit to open up, he goes, oh, I wish I could stop. Oh, how I wish I could stop, right? And he goes, but it's got me. It's really bad. In God's eyes, that wish that he has, even though he can't stop at the moment, is greater than someone else who may not even take that stuff. You see? So we don't know. Always be very careful. He had a long desire to make this monastery. He had vowed to God that he would not abandon those women who had gathered around him, who were nuns, when he left the world because they had been faithful helpers of his for many years. And in the future, other women could also live there. He wanted to make a monastery. His first thought was he's going to make the monastery in that property that he, that he rented from the, from the monastery in Calasia, St. Nicholas. He tried to persuade the owners many times either to donate or to sell him the land. It was to no avail. It now seemed that God, the wise regulator and provider of all, didn't want him to make a monastery there for some particular reason, whatever. So the elder turned his sights to another area, so he began this really long time period of searching for properties of where to make the monastery. As I was thinking of this, I was saying to myself, if he's, if he's enlightened and he was able to find ancient monuments and he knew where water was in the wind, like people would go to him and say to him, in our village or in our monastery or wherever, you know, we've got no water. And he'd be in line, he would say, you go there, 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 and the water's there. And, and, and it was. So he was enlightened. He had a lot of gifts. He knew what sicknesses people had. He knew what people were doing on the other side of the world. He would ring them up and say, what's, you know, I, I saw you. And they go, what do you mean? I saw I saw you where you are. I saw where you went. So he had all these gifts. If he had all these gifts, why then did he not get enlightened to know what monastery to where the monastery to go and build, but instead he travelled for so many years looking for a monastery, both before his heart attack and after his heart attack. What's the answer to that? The same reason why he could heal others, but he couldn't heal himself. Oh, God's wish. Yeah, because that's how God wanted it, because sometimes even for the greatest of saints... He doesn't give them great things because they can fall into pride. And he wants them to struggle and he wants them to uh, pray more. And through all, these th through all these procedures, they become stronger. Not, not necessarily that God gives us everything. That's what people understand. They come to a priest or they go somewhere or they pray and they say, I want it now, but it might not be good. And they go, oh, God doesn't listen to my prayers. God heard your prayers. He heard everything, but it might not be time now. So you have to wait when God wants something. And he did that. And he travelled all around Athens. He went even to his island, Evia. He even thought of going to Crete to make a monastery, like all the way to Crete. And um, when he became better after his stroke and when he had felt he could, he could, he continued to search for the monastery. 
He spared no effort. He travelled to various places in the cars of his spiritual children. He even looked into the possibility of building a convent on Crete, like I said, or some other island. He worked unbelievably hard, just like he worked hard when he was digging the, um, the, the, in the farm that he had, in the, in the um, planting of, of, of the trees and the gardens. We don't just sit there and we say, God, bring me a garden. Bring me food. Remember, Elder Paisio said that. You must make an effort. God, take care of my children. No. You try to take care of your children and God will help you. God, help me find a job and just sit there <laughs> and waiting for the Sydney Morning Herald to come down <laughs> and it has a circle in Texter and says, this is your job. No, get out on the road and go and ring up and look around, look for a job, go for interviews, do things in a human way. Someone the other day said to me something and I was a bit um, shocked. They said, because you know some people are a little bit fanatical and they have really strange things, they go, we had problems at, at our home with ants. And they were coming into a certain room and they were all over the bed and I prayed and they went away. And I go, oh, here we... Oh, I said, here we, here we go. I said, oh, what's now? What's going on here? And, he, and um, I said, uh, you prayed and they went away. He goes, yes. And then he said, we rang up the pest control, we tried baits, we tried, we tried this, we tried all different ways and... We, we tried to no know more gaps. We know gaps, all the holes. We did this, we did that, we did this, we did that. And at the end, we did the prayer. I go, good. I said, God bless. That's okay. Because you tried. And there are prayers, actually, for termites and insects and things like that. But first, he did the human. And then, when that didn't work, he tried everything. Then he went and asked God to help us. All of us, we always have to do the human first. Praying to God and say, you know, bless my intentions, but not just sit there. Like some women that are a bit fanatical when they're going to sit there at home and wait, what? Wait for the baby's nappy to change by itself or for someone that's got problems with their children and just to pray to God, like I met once someone years ago and he's, he's got all these problems with his children. I go, what are you doing? He goes, I just pray to God. I just pray to God. I said, that's not right. What are you doing? He goes, nothing. I just pray to God. And he will help my children. Well, you know, that's not how it works. So he travelled thousands of kilometres. He made countless calculations. And after weighing up all the factors, he finally selected and purchased some property near Athens there. It's called... Um, Milesi, it's the Greek word, Atiki, where it's Oropos, which is some part of just outside of Athens. So in 1980, he took up residence on this property he purchased with the money that he had saved by doing all what he did before, and people also gave, of course, obviously, and he began the construction of his convent that he wanted. That was in 1980. The construction work quickly began, which the elder followed closely. 
He paid for the work from savings that he had, as I said before. His friends and relatives had made over the years also had helped him because they loved, because people love to give money to build monasteries. Well, not everyone, but those who do, and because they know the benefit. For more than a year, while he was living there, he lived in a mobile home, like a caravan, uh, under very difficult circumstances, especially in winter. Afterwards, he settled in a little shabby type of house where he suffered further hardships. So this is a great saint, and yet sickness and sickness and problems and not even proper places to live and places far away. You know, this, this puts us down where we believe, oh, I go to church and everything should be easy. Everything should be easy. Everything should go my way. But that's not how it is. I said before that he had a, that the doctor made a mistake during an operation on his eye and he actually um, got sick. He had started having bleeding in the stomach. They gave him cortisone, which is an anti-inflammatory. That actually made him very, very sick. And a few days later, in 1987, as I said, I went in 1988, he was completely blind. So when I saw him, he was fully blind. Many people came to visit him at this new place that he was at. Orthodox Christians, other people from other religions, unbelievers, thieves, people that were doing sins, all types of people, drug addicts, every type of people that you can think of came to him to, some came out of curiosity, as we'll learn next, next month, and some of them came uh, out of need, some came to make fun of him, but then later on he would tell them something and then they would become shocked and change their lives. Or priests came, monks, nuns, bishops, a lot of people would come to visit him. I'll just put a few lists here of things. He could see, this is what he could see with his gift. He could see ancient and buried monuments that no one knew they were there. Hidden graves. He knew where there was Springs, like subterranean um, springs, lost icons. He could visualise what had happened in a certain place from the past. He could see good and evil spirits. He could see right into the soul. But we'll go through that a lot of that next time, where we go through actually examples of, of, of all those things. But the most important thing here is that he never used the gifts from God to benefit himself, which is what our friend that had to leave because he had to go somewhere, Stamati said when he, well, after the question that was asked by Daniel there on the, on the humility, that he said that um, when we do things, we're supposed to glorify God, which is, the, which is I think what I said, well, people that are proud glorify themselves. Here, even though this saint had such great gifts, he did not glorify himself. Not only that, he didn't use the gifts to make himself better. Even though he made so many people better, but he didn't pray for himself to get better. He never tried to get personal gain and from the knowledge given to him by divine grace. He used it for the purpose of one thing, to glorify God and to help people come to the church and to help people be saved. That's it. That's what he used his gift for. Towards the end, he began to speak less. One, because he had also problems. He was very weak. But he also started to 
submerge himself more in prayer. Less words, more prayer. He silently prayed with great love and humility for all those who sought his prayer and help from God. Like, for example, my example, I didn't speak to him, but I didn't have to. It was enough just to get his blessing, write a little note. That was enough. I believe I, I, I got help from that. And so many other thousand people that went. He stopped words. He didn't, couldn't, couldn't hardly speak anymore. It's very sick. As I said last time, his monasticism started in Manathos. But he had to leave Manathos, even though he didn't want to. He was forced because he was sick. His dream was he wanted to go back to Manathos. He wanted to die on Manathos. He wanted to go back to where he was made a monk. Because when someone's made a monk, he, there, there's prayers read and the person promises that he will stay in that place forever. Of course, there are exceptions that certain saints were tonsured one place, ended up in another place, etc. But in general, where you make your vows, where you make your promises, you're supposed to stay there, whatever happens. But he had to leave. And he wanted to fulfil his dream of going back to Manathos and dying there at the place where he became a monk when he was 15 or 16 or whatever, how old, I forgot how old he was, which is also exceptional. You don't make people, especially today, even though there's a lot of kids that come to the church and they might say, oh, I want to become a monk, I want to become this. But if you really search their mind, they also want to become Superman and Spider-Man and they want to become, they want to become everything else because it's in their fantasy. They read a book, I'm going to become a monk. Then all of a sudden they're a movie star. Then they're this, then they're that. So it's the, it's the fantasy. During the last two years of his earthly life, he would frequently talk about his preparation for his defence before the dread judgment of God. He gave strict orders that if he should die outside of Manathos, they were to take his body back to Manathos, but without glory and all those things, he didn't like any of that. He didn't want any fuss, he didn't want any commotion, he didn't want any praises, he just wanted to die on Manathos, unknown in, in, in a sense. So he actually was able to go while he was alive. On the eve of the Feast of the Holy Trinity, 1991, having gone to Athens to confess to his old and sickly spiritual father, because he also confessed, he received absolution and left for his hut on Manathos. He settled in and waited for the end, prepared to give a good defence before God. So he went to Manathos, he had confessed, he had communed, and he went to Manathos. Elder Porphyrios left Athens for Manathos with the hidden intention of never returning again, but he couldn't tell all his spiritual children that because some of them would go crazy because they loved him so much, they were so dependent on him. To others who were strong, he told them, but to others he would say, you know, oh, I'll be back, whatever, but he didn't want to come back. But he knew that they would try to stop him. His spiritual children in Athens were constantly calling him up while he was in Manathos, and twice they forced him to return back to Athens, to the convent, against his will. There he gave consolation to all those who needed it, because they really wanted him and loved him and saw what great miracles this man could do, what guidance he could give, what love he had. He would then hurry back to Mount Athos as quickly as possible. He ardently desired to die there and to be quietly buried in the midst of prayer and repentance. Didn't want people around. But when we read books, we see that some saints died with a lot of people around them. Does that mean Elder Porphyrus is better and they're not? No, different circumstances. Some saints died with thousands of people there and they had big funerals with, like when St. John of Cronstein died, so many thousands of people were there. While others 
Hardly no one knew it because they were in different places and different circumstances, whatever. Towards the end of his life, he became uneasy over the possibility of his spiritual children's love affecting his wish to die alone. He was scared that his spiritual children were going to make him go back to Athens. He was used to being obedient and submitting to others. He would just listen. He was like that. This is important too. If someone told him, Elder, come here, he'd go. Elder, how about over here? He'd go. But we have other saints, as I've said before, and elders who are strict. Why? Because it depends on the person's makeup. Even the apostles had their own characteristics. Saint Luke was a doctor. If you read his epistles, they're a bit different to some of the others that were fishermen. Both enlightened, but there's a certain, their character. When the, when the apostles wrote, they didn't write like automatic, just without their own will. Their part of themselves was also in that, even though it was inspired by God. For myself, my past is, as you know, a teacher. Therefore, my character, my personality is that if someone does something wrong, I will tell them they've done something wrong. I will stop the talk. I will stare at them because that's the way I am, because that's the way I, you know, from teaching all those years. I use certain ways of speaking because that's my character. Elder Porfirios was different character. He never preached, for example. He actually was against preaching to some extent. Now, someone can say, see, we shouldn't preach because other portfolios said we shouldn't preach. So there's a reason why he was against some of this preaching. Because in Greece, a lot of Greece was um, overrun with brotherhoods who had Protestant mentalities. And they used to set up halls, not in the parish, but outside of the parish and do talks. And a lot of the talks were a bit Protestant in spirit that was disconnected from the parish life. And he was against that. Now, those people served some purpose because in Greece um, there was a lot of problems in the beginning and these people did help a lot of Orthodox Christians come to Christ. However, when you just say, if I'm just here and say, all you've got to do is listen to me, just come and listen to talks, just listen to talks, that's wrong. That's why I do the service beforehand. Because spiritual life is, and the sermons, and the liturgical life. The services, in other words. But these people in Greece were saying that the sermon is the main thing. So he, in reaction to that, would say the most important thing is not the sermon, he would say, Elder Previews, he would say the most important thing is one, just even one monk or one nun who's humble and prays can hold the whole country. Without the liturgy, without the orthodox services, without monasticism, because these brotherhoods were against monasticism as well, by the way, without that, orthodoxy is dead. And that's why he said it. But someone can read it and go, oh, you don't need sermons. You don't have to speak. But the apostles spoke. Christ preached. St. John Chrysostom is the greatest saying. Chrysostom, what's that mean? Greek word. Chryso, gold, stoma, mouth, 
golden mouth. Why did they call him golden mouth? Because whatever came out of his mouth was like gold. Remember once I told you when I went to Melbourne, I was with someone. This person was into um, asceticism, but he wasn't a monk. He just lived in the world. Not very good. If you want to become a monk, go become. Go try it out. Don't pretend. Anyway, this person uh, took me one day. He said, oh, let's go to the forest. I think I've said this before. So off we go into the forest. And he had a pouch, like a, like a pouch like they, like they wear in Mount Athos. It's as if I was walking through the forest of Mount Athos. Well, that's how he set it up anyway. So we went there and um, we came to a clearing there, a barbecue area where there's a bench and we sat down. And all of a sudden he opened this book up and started reading to me some ascetical saint which says silence is golden. Silence is because this person never spoke hardly. <laughs> and because he never spoke, people thought he was holy. So at first, when, I, when this person was taking me into the forest, there was no one around, I was thinking to myself, is this my last day on earth? <laughs> is this person maybe a serial killer? I didn't know what, what exactly to expect. What was, in that, what was in his bag? I didn't even know. When a book came out, I was relieved. But I still had the thought that maybe he might bash me with the book. So he opened up the book and he read to me. Now he said to me, read this, silence is golden. So I wasn't a priest and I wasn't a monk, I was just a lay person. I said to him, yes, but St. John Chrysostom and some other saints said you must speak to help other people as well. The book closed, back in the pouch, and walked off in silence. I was glad for one thing that I got out of the forest alive. And um, this, this person believed that you don't speak. So he walked through the streets, not speaking to anyone. In my personal opinion, he overdid it because he was mixing things up. Yes, if you're in a monastery, you don't speak because you are obedient and there's no need to speak. If you're in the desert, there's no one to speak. If you did, then I think you're mad because you're speaking to yourself because there's no one else around. If you are um, in the world, you ha- of course you're going to speak. You have to speak to your neighbour. You've got to speak to your wife. You've got to speak to your husband. You've got to say things to your children. What are you going to sit there like that in a room? That's just silly. So we've got to be careful we don't take things out of context. Yes, he was a great saint, and yes, he did speak that, but we have to know why he said that. Why was he against at some stage? Because these people said that the sermon is the greatest thing and that's all that counts. Personally, I believe you can come here and you can listen. Some of you have been here now for three hours. That's good. That's a great thing. But if you don't... Connect the sermon, the talk, with spiritual life, life in the church, then the words don't go anywhere. They can become quite harmful as well. So we're coming to the end. Ah, He said to the monks, if I tell you to take me back to Athens, prevent me, it will be from temptation. Indeed, many friends of his made different plans to bring him back to Athens since winter was approaching and his health was getting worse. I was saying, look, it's cold in Mount Athos. There's no electricity. You're going to get sick. Come back to Athens. 
God, who is all good and who fulfills the desires of those who fear him, fulfilled Elder Porfirios' wish. He made him worthy of having a blessed end in extreme humbleness and unknown. He was surrounded only by his disciples on Mount Athos, a few people, who prayed with him. On the last night of his earthly life, he had confession, he prayed, his disciples read the 50th Psalm and other Psalms, and they also read the service for the dying. Beautiful service that the priest reads for the person who's dying. Um, never think, oh, if we read the prayer, that means they're going to die for sure. I once went to the hospital here at, what's this, Cogra? And there's, but the, this girl said to me, woman said to me, my mother's sick, can you read the prayer? Because it looks like she was going to die. I read the prayer and... Um, she lived another 10 years, so she, she didn't, she didn't um, die. But if she was going to die, those prayers are great help for those who are dying. When you, at the time of death, it's a very big trial. Prayers are needed. Once in a village, there was a person who was dying and the soul wouldn't come out and the person was suffering. And the, the children, I forgot who it was now, the, the relatives... They, they were religious, and they began to sing the paraclesis to the mother of God, like we sang last month, the whole paraclesis. And as soon as they got a little bit into the paraclesis, she became peaceful and she died. I remember also reading in a, in a Russian account during communist Russia, when religion was, of course, banned, this person had just died. And as soon as the person died, they realised that they were out of their body and the demons were there. And... The nurse must have been an, an orthodox Christian, but you, you couldn't show it in those days. So she looked around to see there's no one around, and then she did her cross and said, Most Holy Mother of God, help his soul, something along those lines. And as soon as she said just those words, the Mother of God came and helped the person to be protected from the demons that had come, etc. Prayer is very important, especially liturgies. They said the short prayer, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. That's powerful. Until they have completed the gruel of the great schema, because he was a great schema. With great love, his disciples offered him what he needed, a little bodily and a lot of spiritual comfort. Comfort, spiritual comfort is what? Putting the pillow there, that's important, that's bodily. Spiritual comfort is prayers. A person who is dying and a person who has just died needs prayers. For a long time they could hear his holy lips whispering the last words that came from his venerable mouth. These words were the same Christ prayed on the eve of his crucifixion, that we may be one. They heard him say that we may be one. One means the church, or the people to be one in the church. After this they heard him repeat only one word, the word that is found at the end of the New Testament in the book of Revelations where um, St. John the Apostle says, yes, come Lord Jesus, that's the last words. He said, Come, come, like he was actually saying to Christ to come and take him. The Lord, his sweet Jesus, came. The saintly saint soul of Elder Porphyrus left his body at 4.31 in the morning. That's significant because, as I said, during that time, the whole of Manaphos is, is doing their services and liturgies. On the morning of the 2nd of December, 1991, and he journeyed towards heaven. His venerable body was dressed 
in the monastic manner, with the schema and the hat and everything else that they do, was play, placed in the main church of Kapsu Kalivia, which is the skeet. As I've said last time, they have like, it's like a village where they have all little houses where the monks live, and in the middle is the church, and the monks took his body there. Everything was done in agreement with the saint, what he wanted. They had been written down to avoid any mistake. At dawn on the 3rd of December, in other words, the next day, they covered him in the earth. In Manathos, by the way, they don't use coffins. They wrap the monks in their rasa. The long ones that the monks wear, they completely sew them up in their rasa and put them into the ground. They don't use um, coffins. In the presence of a few monks of the Holy Skeet of Kapsukalivia. It was only then, in accordance with the elders' wishes, that they finally announced to the world that he passed. That's just a little drop in the water. I mean, there's so much. I just did whatever I could do with my ability, which isn't much, a little drop of water. Like, you know, you got a drop of water and put it in the ocean? Well, that's what I did today. But beggars can't be choosers. Sometimes a drop can prevent us of becoming, um, of spiritually dying. Any questions on that, on this um, a great elder? Some of you are new, sorry, Joe, one second. Some of you are new and find things alien. And I know that you would find things alien because some of the things you've never heard of before. But as I've said to people last month and other times, don't reject, never reject, but don't have to accept either if that's not what you're ready to accept. But just be there waiting and start your searching and God will slowly, slowly make a lot of these things make sense. Once this young fellow who came, just started going to church, one second, George, there, he was a, he was a young fellow, about, say, 23, 24, he started going to church. Yeah, he became interested in the church but didn't know much, never was brought up in the church from young. And he went to some relatives' place, they were really into the church, and they would speak, and they would say things like, um, oh, in that, saint's, in that saint's life, the way he did this and the way he did this, and the saint did this, and then the saint appeared, and, and all these things. And this young guy who was worldly was looking at them and was saying, how do they believe? Like, that's really, I find it really hard to believe. Some of you might be saying that today. It's okay. I've got no worries with that. And so this young person was looking at them and saying, it's amazing, but I can't believe like that. I cannot believe um, like they do. He didn't reject it, but he just couldn't believe because it was hard. He, was, he needed faith. He never had the faith. And he would sit there with his mouth open, and they would just talk about all these things and spiritual and angels and saints and, and about God and all these things, and he would just... He got a bit upset and he goes, I don't think I ever will be like that. He says, I cannot see myself becoming like that because I haven't got it. So that's the story. And as some of you might be doing, listening to this today and saying, I, I cannot really, you know, the person that's speaking, is speaking about it. He believes it, but I can't. Any of you like that? Anyone have anyone want to say that? that? Okay. When you've.
I mean, it didn't make sense. Why would someone sleep on rocks? Like, <laughs> that concept was so fine. He was in laughing at the state when he took out it. He was wise. <laughs> so you can relate that it was just some I things that thing. So what do you think of the story of the person? That person, he couldn't... Un- him, but he was huge. You were just questioning the rock. This person was questioning everything. He could not believe like these people. For me, um, like back before, um, you have to have an understanding of Christian anthropology. So in the sense of what, what, what does it mean to be connected to the church and God? And, and what does it mean to be um, separated? Because we mentioned that about depression. So when we talk about the God, the effect of depression. That side, all this sort of stuff. And it's all well, well, separate from the truth. You know, whether you call that truth big thing or the truth that the truth that men should be a humble thing, you know, uh, a giving thing, and all this sort of stuff. But yeah, uh, I think that's where, I mean, especially in this day and age, that's where we are. You know, everywhere we're at, that's But you would say that it's faith. Yeah. We need faith. Yeah, faith. That person didn't have faith. Does that mean he's an atheist? Um, no. Because um, he didn't reject it. He actually no, he didn't. Reje- I think he rejected, he rejected the concept that is so, it's too far away from him. Because he didn't have? He didn't have faith. He didn't have faith. Yeah. So we need faith. Yeah. And faith is given by God. Yeah. We have to ask for it. So what's the end of the story? Are you interested in the end of the story? To see, did this person get the faith? Hmm? Did he get it? Um, I think so, because it was me. So um, I was talking about myself. I did it on purpose. It's a technique. Get people excited, and at the end, you give them the bang. And that's the truth. That was me. I could not understand to me, it was all as if they were speaking Chinese or something. It was just a whole different thing, but I didn't reject it. And I think slowly, slowly, that before I knew it, like after quite a few months, I began to realise that I'm actually obtaining the faith, but given by God. But you have to ask for the faith. If you don't ask for it, then you're not going to get it. Everyone's got the you know. Some of our saints came from different ways. Some were philosophers, Greek philosophers, and they used their philosophy to try to come to the faith. Saint Justin the philosopher. And we have other saints that like Saint Barbara that I think it was Saint Barbara that looked out Saint Marina, I forgot now. So I think it was Saint Barbara looked out and noticed nature. And from nature she came to the realization of of um of God as a creator. So everyone's different how they come to the church. Any other questions before we end? One more. Uh, Daniela, yes? Uh, I communion, Holy Communion.
shouldn't get, get really important for months a year. Some friends they say we can have a communion every every Sunday if you fast and everything. So I'm very confused there. Like what's the right thing to do? Like if you are already repented and baptized and you're struggling and living a spiritual life, of course. Yeah. Saint Nicodemus of Athos, he lived in the, oh, I think it's maybe 18th century, I can't remember now, but he lived a few hundred years ago, and he believed in frequent communion. But the, even the monks of Man Athos thought that that was a heresy, that was wrong. And they persecuted him, for other reasons too, but they persecuted him, and he had to leave Man Athos. The Greek church, in the last, dec- uh, last century, I think a lot, brought back that of frequent communion. The Serbian church didn't because of the fact that the Serbians were not very churchly. They also went through the communism as well. So a lot of them didn't have a lot of, a lot of the... Like, so that at least they did those times. You've got to look at circumstances. You've got to look at historic, historical circumstances. You know, in Russia, it was the same thing. Only a few times a year, St. John of Cronstein came along and said you should commune every day. St. John Chrysostom believed you should commune every day. I think St. Basil the Great said you should commune four times a, a, a week and things like that. I believe in frequent communion. But there's other priests who will say that they don't believe in that. And that's a topic which I think needs a lot of discussion. And I, um, yes, the liturgy is done so we can commune. But we've got to be careful because sometimes we can, as I was trying to explain to our friend Daniel, or no, I think it was someone else, that. We can be doing something which can look good. Now, someone else. We can be doing something that can be looking good, but at the end can cause catastrophe and pride. Especially if you go into a church where hardly no one communes and all of a sudden you're going there, then the devil will come along and say you're special and this and that. So we've got to be very, very careful on that topic. And I will come to that one day. I don't feel confident to say it now because if you've noticed from the talks as I've built up, I'm building up, building up, building up to a certain um, level. And then when we come to that, then I will... I've got to feel ready and I've got to feel that the audience that I've got is more ready to actually do that because um, there's, that, there's that problem. Some priests say this, some priests say that, and you don't want to cause controversy. It's sensitive. It needs discernment. It needs discernment. Yes, Holy Communion is good and we should commune often, but we've got to be careful that it doesn't become a two-edged sword where it can cut us back, where we can do us damage because of pride and, um, and other things. So that is a topic that we will come on to, and thank you for bringing that up, and I will keep it in my refrigerator and I will bring it out when the time comes soon. Nothing else?
Greg Green. They dedicate their life to God, and even though they're with God, they're suffering. And to our minds, it doesn't make sense. Even though the person's a saint, they still have passions. They still have the fallen nature. Saint Porfir- Elder Porphyrus himself says that he had a lot of sins. And he didn't just say that like people, you know, what's called in Greek, tapinologia. Tapinologia means where we speak humble. I'm a, I'm, I'm a worm, I'm this, I'm that. You know, it's easy to say that but not to feel it. When the saints said they had sins, they didn't just say it because they were trying to be humble. They meant it. So they have their sins and they've got their pride, yes? The question is, I think, if I heard it right, is uh, we get sicknesses because we need to be humbled, but why would the saints get sicknesses when they are so holy? Is that what you're saying? St. John of Cronstadt, when I read it years ago when I was younger, and when I read it, then it made it, uh, it shocked me because I've never read it before, which is your question. He, as he was dying, he couldn't even breathe. He was, uh, he was like suffering a lot when he was dying because he was very sick, St. John of Cronstadt. And he prayed and he said, thank you, God, for giving me this to cleanse me of my, the remaining of my sins. Everyone's got sins. Everyone needs cleansing. Sometimes, of course, God also gives it to someone who can be so holy, but he does it as an example for us to say, well, that will help me. I said, if St. John of Cronstadt, this great saint, was suffering before he died, or you know, then how much more for us? Then we shouldn't complain. If we see great, this elder suffering, then it helps me that when I have sicknesses, or all of us, that it makes it easy to say, well, if they suffered and they were so great and so holy people... How much more we, sh- we suffer when we're full of sins and we're slack and we're proud and we've got a lot of evil in us. So St. John Chrysostom says we should be ashamed when we see someone who's wholly suffering, you should say to yourself, I really should be suffering because I've got sins and we should become more repentant with, with, to God and say, well, thanks God that in some ways that I'm, I'm not... Um, I haven't got worse than what I've got. Some people say they want worse. It's all, it's all um, different for different people. But for us, we suffer because of our sins. The saints also had secret sins. They also had uh, passions. They also had their own little problems. St. John Chrysostom was full, was full of God's gra- grace, but he suffered so much. You know, they put him on the horse and they took him and, you know, they, they spat on him and picked him and hit him and things like that. But he was a great preacher. There's a, how do we know that God didn't do that to help him? Because if he, he converted so many people, helped so many people for his preaching, if God didn't give him sufferings, he could have fallen to pride. St. Paul, the great enlightener of Christianity, the mouth of Christ, had so many sicknesses. He says, well, the sicknesses are good for me because they keep me humble. So, yes, the saints, even they need to be humbled and we should look at their example and not complain when we have our sins. Through the prayers of our Holy Fathers, Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, and save us. Amen.